tune in Tokyo. I <laughs> got you. Got you, brother. Can you hear me? Oh, perfect. How about me? Yeah, good. Oh, yeah, that works perfect. Yeah, see. Yeah, for my, I, I probably need to get one of those, whatever it is that you'd said before, you know, that you can plug your phone into so that way you can record that just just with a phone. I just don't have that yet, you know. No problem. How's it going? That's good, man. How are you over there just uh, just touring the country? What's going on on the East Coast, man? So I'm in Hilton Head, South Carolina right now. And it's, if you can see out here to my right, which you probably can, it's uh, I can the see ocean. The sun. I can and see it, the sun. Yeah, but it's actually just started raining. We're supposed to get uh, two days of rain, but the weather's been beautiful. And um, we're able to take the dog and walk Poppy on the beach and just kind of sightseeing around, just eating our way through South Carolina and Georgia, both. The food down here is absolutely amazing and um, just having a good time. Getting kind of rested up before turkey season here. Yeah, exactly. So what got you? So just was there family or friends out there or you decide just throw a dart at the... Yeah. Yeah. Last year we spent a month in Florida before uh, turkey season and I was able to get my Osceola and my wife has been wanting to come to Charleston and Savannah and Kiowa Island and some of this country down here. So um, last year we were the 15th of February to March 15th. And this year we just did the whole month of March um, down here. And so we, we started out in Savannah, Georgia, uh, then we were at um, Jekyll Island, Georgia, uh, then uh, Savannah, let's see, no Savannah, then Charleston, then Kiowa, and then we're going to finish up here at Hilton Head Island. Um, so yeah, we're just kind of bouncing around. We've, I've never been to this part of the country. Um, I had been to Greenville, South Carolina, probably 20, 25 years ago. Uh, caddying for a, a friend of mine in the, not the regular tour, it was the next tour down. I think at the time they called it the Nike tour for golf. Um, there was a tournament in Greenville, South Carolina. That was kind of the furthest East I had been um, up until now. So now I've uh, been to Florida and, and the far East coast of South Carolina. So here we are. Nice, man. Nice. Yeah. Right on. Well, cool. Um, the, let me just kick this off then and we'll just start because otherwise, you know, exactly. We're going to miss a whole bunch of good stuff. So sure. All right. Three, two, one. Hey everybody. Welcome to row hunting resources podcast. All right. Obviously you're hearing it. Uh, got the man Jay Scott back on. It's been a long time. So I'm glad to see you're still alive and kicking after you go on your whirlwind tour in Mexico and well, just got out of Mexico with coos deer hunt or cow- yep. it's cows whitetail by the way. Um, and then any, uh, any respectable cooster <laughs> hunter says coos. <laughs> Let's end oh. the debate right here and right now. <laughs> Let's just, if you yeah. say cows, there's something wrong with you. Let's just leave it at that. Hey man, you know we're supposed to stay with the science, right? We're supposed to we're supposed to stay with the science. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you just got—I mean, not just, but you had a whirlwind tour down there for deer and then you're getting ready to go back down for ghouls and you know i've got um well the isc shows coming up this weekend and then you're going to be traveling so this is perfect timing um so and and people have been i well i asked you like you know if you've been getting bombarded with people asking them when we were a when we were going to come back on again and then b people wanted us to talk turkeys again so uh, this is perfect timing so i appreciate you yeah i'm and 
being able to I'm excited on. to be on. I've been excited to see the success of your podcast. I, I told you a long time ago that if you uh, put your mind to it and could stick to a consistent routine that you would do really well. And I think the, you know, the, it's obvious that, that people like to hear what you have to say. And I'm really glad that you've had success with your own podcast. You've been a great guest on mine for many years and great guest for, for other people as well. And so it's nice to see you kind of having that role as host and, um, you know, being able to flourish in, in, a, in an arena that I think you do really well and you really shine. So, well, I yeah, um, I, I back to the, the coos deer, um, just it's kind of hard to believe how fast time flies, but I actually just finished my 26th season uh, doing coos deer in Mexico. It's hard to believe. I turned 49 last month, uh, but 26 years uh, taking coos deer hunters. We had a really good year this year. Uh, the monsoon rains uh, were very good. Uh, and so the deer were in good shape. The ranches were in really good shape. I feel like if we can put another monsoon, uh, you know, season, you know, this season coming up, we could have a really bang up year for coos uh, in the coming January, 2023. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of logistics and things that, uh, you know, I have to deal with on those hunts and, um, traveling, uh, this month with my wife down here in South Carolina and pretty much just eating our way through Georgia and South Carolina as we go, um, getting fat and getting ready for Turkey season, um, preparing for, uh, a great Gould's Turkey season down in Mexico. So that's kind of what I've been doing. Nice. All right. Well, let's, let's tackle two things. And this is, I've been wanting, well, actually, if you don't mind, I want to tackle three things specific to you um, that I've wanted to talk about for a while. And I don't know if this is going to eat up the whole time. You tell me how much time you have, or, you know, just flag me or whatever, if you need yeah, to mail. Because um, there's been a couple things that, it, three different topics that I wanted to kind of cover with you that, that are unique to you that people have asked about. And then if, you know, we, we tackle those, we don't have to go down major rabbit holes with them, but then we can, we can jump into some of the questions because some of the questions cut and this, I mean, and to be honest, I, I keep saying this and it's going to sound like a stupid broken record or, or maybe I'm just freaking blowing smoke up people's butts, but man, I freaking love the row hunting resources community. And I, and I bet it's the same thing with you because, you know, you are more, you know, your podcast has always been more geared toward an educational uh, focus. You know, you're, you're interviewing outfitters, you're interviewing people and, and you're, you're asking questions, you're gathering information and that information, whatever the topic is, West, obviously Western hunting, but it's, it's the, the people that are listening to you are coming to you because they want to get to learn information. Obviously mine's similar. I've just, and I don't, we're going to find out if it, if it, uh, if it was a smart decision or not, but I I've, I've talked about some other things on my podcast, but, um, you know, it just, it's just, this is how I believe this is what I believe. And, and some of the discussions, you know, I think are, are painful truths that I think the sportsman community needs to wrestle with. So, you know, mine's, a, mine's, mine is going to be educational, but it might have a little bit of a difference to it. Um, but with that being said, they, I think it attracts a, a different type of crowd to where, when I ask a question and this is, this happened like it, well, the last three podcasts, I ask a question and like, I'll get 20 questions come in. 
But each question is like, well, I can't answer that because that's an entire podcast. I mean, like that right. question is deep. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a good question. It's not like, oh, by the way, what, what color hat are you, are you going to wear during it? No, this is like fundamental deep stuff to where you're like, okay, put a pin in that because that is its own discussion. Oh, shit, there's the next question. There's another discussion and another discussion and another discussion. Now, we've got some good ones in here that I, that I do want to touch on. Um, <laughs> probably starting out with what I just sent you as far as that turkey call and the, and the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. Oh, I applaud the, I applaud. So I shouldn't have, there's been. some gimmicks out there, man. We, uh, I don't. Okay. So, okay. So let's, let's just, let's just touch it because otherwise this is where my brain is right now. Cause I stumbled across that. It came across my, so it's Instagram. I'm looking through Instagram and all of a sudden a sponsored ad showed up about for a guy wanting to sell a Turkey call. It would, I think he would have been better off if he just described it and then did not demonstrate it. Because he described it and I'm like, okay, so, all right. And, and then he decided to demonstrate it and it just kept getting worse. Did it not? It just. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things. I think it's you, I think it's always good to have a few buddies when you have an idea and you kind of run it by them and you kind of, you know, let's, let's kind of put it through the test here and see if this, if, you know, if it will pass the sniff test. And I think that was one that he probably failed to do a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, exploration with his buddies to say, Hey, how does this sound? And, you know, whether we're talking elk calls or turkey calls, waterfowl, whatever we're talking, you know, I don't really care what the call looks like. I don't really care how it's made. I just want to see or hear, can it make a really good sound and can people, consistently take that call and make a good sound because, you know, there are calls that I've seen that are finicky and one person can blow them really well. Um, but in that, you know, in the particular case you're talking about, it's like that you're supposed to be the one that's blowing that call really well on those sounds you're making. And none of them sound even remotely close to me. I think one of the things with Turkey People just think because they can get a, you know, just a, you know, choppy sound that all of a sudden that that's what a turkey sounds like. And, you know, there's probably a chance that he's going to fool a few birds with that. Depending on where he is. But I mean, consistently, no way, you know, it's just not it, you know, I think the sales in the first couple of months will probably tell the tale. Yeah. And yep. it will determine whether he's successful or not. Um, but I think anyone making a call, um, you know, they need to understand that, that in order to be successful in the call business, you have to make a call that's consistent, number one, and consistent for everyone that blows it so that you, you know, it's not, it's something that anybody can pick up and make a really good sound out of. That's something that will sell. Yeah. It, and so I agree with everything. Um, I mean, I, I applaud I, his effort for okay, trying, that's, but there you go. And, and this is where I, I that's where I struggled. Now, I, obviously I, I listened to that and I was, I, I had the exact same reaction WTF. I was like, 
what am I listening to? Because it was hard. I don't even want to. I'm not going to mention it because I, I. It doesn't matter. Just people need to listen to these when when someone wants to sell you something. That's the that's the benchmark. What does it sound like? Right. Does it actually? And this sounded horrible, folks. I mean, every time he decided to demonstrate something, more, you know, he's you know, you start with the basics and the fundamentals, and then try to get fancy with it, and it just got it just just kept getting worse. And two, there's a there's so many things that just went through my mind when I saw it. I'm like, number one, it, you what you just said, man. I love the free market capitalist system, and I applaud that guy for going. I want to try something new. I, I wanted. I want to make this. He, he obviously. There's no two ways about it. This wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was manufactured, so he had sure. to go through all the design stuff. He had to come up with a prototype. He had to. He had to find somebody that was going to uh, uh, mold it. I mean, I. I've got buddies that work in that industry and, and just getting a mold and all that type of stuff for mass production. That, that's not cheap. So, no. I mean, he, he put a lot of effort into this and uh, kudos, kudos. Sure. Um, but to what you said is, you know, even beyond the sniff test is number one, the benchmark today for what quality turkey calls can do and what you same thing elk calls predator it doesn't matter they're so good you have they're to, so good that you, right. you're going to have to compete with that not it's not just that you have a, a neat idea to your point if 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 all of the really high quality sounding calls out there were just a pain in the butt to try to master and this guy came up with a call that was just sounded good but that was stupidly easy to work then of course he would make a, a ton of money on it because people are going to want that, that uh, thing that they could just pick up and just go. But there's a lot of calls out there on the market these days that you can just pick up and just go. And it, they sound great. So number one, you've got to at least meet that benchmark right. and, I, and agree his ear in, in his mind, he is emotionally invested in this product. So of course he's going to be like, Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. You're going to have to pit it. He, I, I agree. It should have been pitched to some independent, you know, non-emotional people and say, tell me what you think. At the very least, put it up against some video of hens talking. Because, I mean, th yeah. there's plenty of that on, 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 the, on the YouTubes and everywhere else these days. And, and you know, the thing that I, the other thing that the frustrating, not frustrating, but just makes me sad is, I'm starting to see this with some of the folk and I guarantee, well, heck, I know I've been down there with you and I know that the number of people you run and we'll get into that in a minute, but you know, what, you know, you have people that come to, you know, hunt with you for Goulds and they're like, yeah, I want to do my own calling. And you're like, okay. And then like five minutes into it, you're like, I tell you what, how about I call a little bit and show you what works down here. And then how about you just put the call away and just run the trigger. <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's difficult for me you know because there's some people that they just dead set on wanting to do it their way and you know there's been a handful of times where literally i'm just sitting here thinking this isn't gonna work I, I i can't even believe this person who's trying this has actually had a bird come in and successfully like call the bird in and like they're really into it like they're yeah. like they're they all got yeah. they're all in like all this in. is how i do it and i'm just sitting there going <clears throat> whoa i mean like it's and, just not even close like and and you know okay so I'm, let me i'm so, an average caller at best but it's like 
Whoa. This is, oh, man. Okay, now, okay, so, oh, see, we're going to go down this rabbit hole. That's that's fine. People wanted to talk about turkey. Let's talk about turkey. Let's talk about Colin. So two things, which you just said there. Don't let me get off of the, you said you're, you're, what'd you say? An an average average caller. Okay, don't let me move off that because I want to come back to that. And I'm not taking, I mean, you're friends with Billy Yargis and, and some of the, some of the best callers in the world have come down and hunted with you. And, and you've got to sit there and, and listen to these guys just absolutely make a Turkey call sing mm-hmm. the pro and, and I, and so I, I'm just going to say it and, and I hope they understand where I'm coming from. I'm almost to the point where if someone wants to learn how to turkey call, I think there's a benefit to listening to some of these phenomenal callers if they are an, also a phenomenal teacher. Because I have people to come hunt with me that when we sit and talk and I listen to them calling, and wherever they are on the, the progression scale, because I'm the same thing. I, I consider myself, uh, I've, I've always said, a, an efficient caller to where I, I'm, not, I'm not fancy. I'm not, I, I can't do 90% of what some of these champion callers can do. Um, but we, like you, it, you stack birds left and right every year. Um, so some of these champion callers and some of these people that are teaching Um, they're, they're a phenomenal resource, but what I think people lose sight of is those people have spent so much time mastering the fundamentals of the basic yelp, of the clocks, of the purrs, that it is so easy and, and second nature for them that and, and they've, they've developed that so much that they have progressed and they're in the calling championship world and all this other stuff to where they have to add another feather to their cap. They have to add another tool. So they've got to do the cackles. They have to do uh, the cutting. They have to do, you know, just every, I mean, every tiny little sound a turkey can do. And what I think a lot of turkey hunters get wrapped up in is they hear this entire spectrum of sounds that a champion caller can do. And the the beginning hunter says, okay, well, I need to learn all that. And so I'll I'll learn a little bit about yelps. I'll learn a little bit bit about clucks, purrs, and and then cutting, and then cackling, and then then fighting. and And all of a sudden, the fundamentals and the basics get glossed over so that they can quickly get to the sexy, you know, and the more aggressive or the more technical type of sounds, the and, shiny, fancy. Call. Yeah. And so I, I, for me, I, I, you know, people will come and they want to call I'm like, okay. And they jump right straight into cutting. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. number one out here with us, my birds, I think I can count on one hand the time I've heard hens in my area actually cutting. Um, and that's being generous because I think I can probably count it on one finger. They, they don't, they, they don't need to because the way our flocks are busted up and the way those groups, they don't need to. 
and we have open habitats where, again, they can keep an eye on one another. They can literally look over and see one another. And when a hen gets separated or she's cruising the landscape looking for it, she's it's it's yelps. They're not cutting. And so most of the time, if if you get if you want to jump into cutting out here, you'll shut the birds right down and they are not going to come in because it's not something that's natural on the landscape. And so I'm almost to the point where even with my instruction on, excuse me, on the turkey module, I'm like, just listen to the hens. Just, just, I, I, we've got footage and you've got footage. Just listen to the hens. I don't care how much flashy you want to do. I want you to consume every video that you can, that you can consume of turkeys in front of the camera that are talking. And I just want you to master that. Once you can master, I mean, like master, like where the Yelp becomes second nature, you, you can't screw up a Yelp. And if you, you understand that every, you know, even if you make a mistake, you just power through it and you just, you, okay. And this, this is going to bleed over. So I'm headed to Denver here tomorrow um, for the ISE show. I've got to, I'm doing another elk seminar and this is, this kind of concept is going to touch into that presentation this weekend. Um, if people can just focus on the fundamentals, I think their success is going to go through the roof. Again, look at you and the number of birds that you, you know, engage in and, and put on the ground each spring, my success over the years, neither one of us are out there just, you know, yelp, cut, cut, yep, 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 cut, 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 yep, yep, just cut. We're not out there just working it. Most of the time, I'm literally working a yelp and that's it. And when they get close and they want to hang up, I'll work a cluck and purr maybe. Like, that's it. And I, 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 Focus on the fundamentals. And so for this particular call manufacturer, I just looked at it and I'm like, I don't know how, and I, and I, and I, again, this is not disrespectful, but I, I look at that and I'm like, and understanding that everybody's ear musically is different. So some people can't carry a note in a five gallon bucket, but they hear something and they go to try to reproduce it. And they're, they're not even in the same ballpark. So maybe that's the issue, but I just looked at that and I'm like, how much experience does that person have actually in front of turkeys? You know what I mean? It just, man. It, it, so to the point of, you know, people asking all the time about turkey calling and turkey hunting, it's like, guys, I don't have anything new for you. I, I don't have some new, you know, every... I understand if you're a call manufacturer, you've sales are you've got to sell. You you've got to sell something new, and and so you've got to create something that's ooh ah. I need to have the the, the latest G whiz bang. But I tell people, you know, go to the turkey module and just understand how to make a yell. Whether it's a box call, whether it's a slate call, whether what I don't care. Just understand it because you know. Again, going down to Mexico with you, here you are with Goulds. You've hunted Merriam's, you've hunted Rio's. I mean, you went and got your, your Osceola. I've hunted, 
The vocalizations are the same. The communication's the same. The fundamentals are the same. And the number of birds that get put on the ground every year, just from the basic fundamentals, ought to trump all of the, the, the glamour and sexy that pe people feel that they need to, to, to try. So I don't know what, I mean. It, well, I mean, I, I'm fortunate to be able to, the last 12 seasons down there in Mexico, have some of the best callers in the world, literally world champion, you know, NWTF world champion callers. And I sit there with my back to a tree and listen to them and they can make those calls sing and make every, you know, sound there is. And a lot of times I'll have to kind of look over at them and I'll just be like, sweeten it up. Like you're like, here's a guy that's won multiple, you know, championships and back to the basics of just yelp at these Goulds turkeys, sweet talk them, you know, cluck and purr a little bit and they're in your lap. What I do notice, it seems like sometimes the better, and I'm not referring to any of the guys that come down and hunt with me, but just in general, the better that someone gets on a mouth call, the more they end up calling. And in my opinion, the more birds during a hunt sequence, they end up pushing away. Um, I feel very confident that even the best callers in the world, I can sit there in the field 10 yards away. And I know that that's not a Turkey. That's a human being, even with, I mean, the best callers that have ever blown a Turkey call. And the same with elk, you know, you, you can get there and be like, this guy is the best, but he still doesn't sound perfect. So I he's, think he's the best on a stage with other, with other humans, with human ears, judging what their human ears are hearing in relation to the other humans on the stage. Well, and, and even giving them the benefit that even 100%. out in the woods, they sound 100%. unbelievable. And as far as anyone actually blowing a turkey call, you know, out of their mouth, it's as good as any human can do. But with that being said, it's still a lot of times not dead on. So I always try and in, in my thing, call just enough to get the bird coming, call just enough to get the bird reacting and doing what you want. So many times, you know, 15 or 20 times per year when I've got, you know, guys that are really good callers, they might not be world champions, but you know, they're calling in state competitions and they're good. They call way too much. They call the birds coming. They call too much as the birds coming in and the bird, what's he going to do? He's going to stop. He's going to strut. He's going to spin around. He's going to say, no, you come to me. So on my box or on my slate, you know, whatever I'm working, I'm making enough to get them fired up. But then I tend to just let them come to me. My job is to have them coming in kind of seeking me out. And one of the reasons why I use decoys, especially in Gould's Turkey country where it's all private property is I call to them. I get them fired up. I watch them strut and do their whole thing. But then when they get in a visual corridor where they should be able to see where that sound comes from, then it's when they see the decoys, then they go ahead and come. And a lot of times I'm just silent, let those birds come on in, do their thing. And that's why they'll stay 15, 20, 30 minutes at the decoys. Cause there's nothing that's been done when they've gotten close enough for them to think that, you know, this isn't real. 
So that's a lot of times why they stand there and just destroy a strutter or destroy a Jake decoy because, you know, they heard the sounds, they were coming to the sounds, they were seeking the sounds out and then their eyes took over and they see the decoys and they're, you know, they're fully engaged and fully believe that those birds are real. And that's my job as a guide to have those birds, you know, put on that show and, and, you know, do that whole thing. Whereas a lot of times I think guys call too much and those birds know exactly where they should be seeing the, the people and, or excuse me, the, 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 the sound. And when they don't see that, they hang up out there at 70 yards. Um, but, you know, I want to be clear, like, I, I think if people would stick with the basics with elk and with turkey, I'm, I'm not a waterfowler, you know, I don't hunt geese or anything. Um, so I would imagine it's the same and maybe even predator calling. Uh, I just think people get way too fancy. They end up wanting to blow every call in their quiver, every sound in their quiver. And it usually comes back to bite them, in my opinion. Less is more, and I believe that wholeheartedly. Well, um, you know, I agree with you. And, and quite honestly, that just – so I'm, I'm making notes now because you, you, you touched on a couple of things there that I think might actually get missed. I, I, I've got to believe that you and I have touched on it, and, you know, we did that seven-part series for your podcast Um a couple of years ago and, and it's still relevant today. Um, but to, to your point, you said about setting up. Okay. So we, we, you and I've talked about decoy spreads and we've talked about how we set up our decoy spreads and, and, you know, my whipping boy set up and, and how all that type of stuff. And, and especially nowadays you're running uh, Dave Smith decoys. I'm running a combination of Dave Smith and avian X decoys. So the high, high um, definition ultra realistic decoys go a long, long way. But from a calling standpoint, when you're, when you're setting up, I think you nailed it. When, when people forget that, again, I, I talk about this with elk hunting all the uh, elk calling all the time is that if you are calling a lot, you have to remember what you're portraying and what you're portraying is there's a, there's some sort of activity over where you're calling from the, the animal you're pretending to be. If she's in most, it, he or she doesn't matter if, if you're calling a lot, then usually that animal is either seeking someone else or is engaging or moving and doing something. And the more, ex, you know, everybody wants to say, build that excitement. Well, that's fine. But make sure that if you're going to, quote unquote, build that excitement, you're building it to where those birds, as they come in, can't see what that excitement should be. Because as soon as they show up and they can see your decoys and you're still, and I don't care if it's 150 on my country, it might be 150 some odd yards away or more. They see the decoys. Well, now it goes again. Most critters are visual communicators first, audible communicators second so as soon as they can see your decoy spread what they see and what they hear ought to jive ought to be in sync and so if you've got just a couple of decoys out there and you're just cranking sometimes i i, I agree that the birds kind of stop and they hang up and they're they're waiting to see this 
buku excitement. Number one, number two, they're waiting. If if they if you true, let's just say stick with turkeys. If you're sounding like a hen that is just desperate for someone, somebody's company, and someone to get there and come over, she's likely going. If if that bird, if that she's gobbler, not going to be a feeding bird, she'll her head correct. will be up and she's going to and moving and and right. most likely she's going to position herself if the bird is gobbling and coming in. She's going to position herself to where she can see him oftentimes, which means there's movement there. There's there's reciprocal movement to where, again, I, which I agree with what I saw, which what you do in, in Mexico and what I've done out of my stuff is I will get I, I've always talked about with elk even I will call as much as I need to, but never any more than I have to. And so if I get that bird coming in and they start working in the war their way in and they get to the point where they see the decoys. I am going to tone it back because now my decoys, if they can see my decoys, my decoys, again, they're supposed to pretend to be real turkeys. My decoys can see them to where now the, the necessity for vocal communication is reduced. And if I can reduce the intensity of the activity I'm pretending to portray, and I, I don't care. Let those birds just walk their way in. Maybe it takes them an hour to just feed and, and relax and come through. That's fine. But they engage that decoy spread in a much more committed fashion, in a much more relaxed fashion. Sometimes the birds, you know, the gobblers come in and beat the ever-loving snot out of the decoy spread. Sometimes they just come in and they just want to strut around. And sometimes... It's the hens that come into the decoy spread first, the mature gobblers out there hanging up. And it's not until the hens get into my decoy spread that the gobblers finally commit. So again, personnel, this is going to come up uh, a lot. I think that for this year on a lot of the stuff I talk about is personality is if you set your decoy spread up correctly and you, and you understand that there's going to be different personalities of those birds, man, I'm like you you lean on the fundamentals of your calling and let your decoy spread work. I just slow down a minute and let the setup work. I think that your success rate is just going to go much, much higher than if you try to get fancy on it. Totally yes, no? agree. Yeah. Um, that's spend time listening to turkeys. Now, with that being said, you you said something a minute ago, and I, I you and I have talked about with with elk and bugling specifically, where you hear a bull elk bugle, and it doesn't even matter what kind of bugle he rips off. It, it, well, let's just put it this way: you hear a bull bugle, and a lot of times you're like, "Yes, that's a bull." You know it. You you you're like, "Yep, that's a bull." Versus you hear some of the best elk callers in the woods and you're like that's a hunter okay and we've talked about those subtle differences in sound that we you know we can distinguish between a a, a lot of times distinguish between an actual bull elk and a, and a guy blowing or guy gal blowing on a bugle you said something here a little bit ago about you know you can tell it's it's not realistic it's it's you can tell even the best callers in the world you can tell that they're a hunter and not a hen and You've said you leaned over and say, you know, sweeten it up a little bit. All right. So in your opinion, when you're sitting back at a setup and you're listening to the hunter, you know, the best of the best caller, and then you're listening to a hen for your ears, 
what are you picking up on that it, it it's like that you, they just instantly you're like okay that's a hen versus now eh, that's a hunter what what are what's the subtle sound difference that you pick up on i think a lot of it's the cadence i don't necessarily know that it's sound it's more cadence and timing um and repetitiveness and consistency within the call you know a lot of times um you know i i just feel like cadence is huge um i feel like you could make average sounds with phenomenal cadence and call in a lot of birds where i think you could make great sounds with bad cadence um, and not do as well, you know, like Billy Yargas, he's, he's unbelievable. And I think one of the things that makes him unbelievable is he really has unbelievable knack for cadence. He has an unbelievable knack for, um, over, over all of the guys that I've heard call, like he has an unbelievable sense of like when to turn it up, when to turn it down, you know, when, you know, just when to really ramp it up, you know, when to, you know, slow it down, when to, to isolate and just start talking with one particular hen and ignore the other ones. Um, but I think overall, you know, I, I think a mouth call kills a lot of people's turkey hunting success. I think for whatever reason, they feel like they are a good mouth caller using a diaphragm and they're really not. And they would kill way more birds if they would just stick, stick with a pot and peg or stick with a box call. Um, I, I feel like, uh, you know, there's a handful of guys and some of them are the pros that, you know, have come down with me. But other than that, a lot of people in my mind should not be blowing a mouth call because they're just not that good. They're either blowing too loud. They can't make consistent sounds back to back and roll them into each other. And they end up, you know, making a sequence that sounds pretty good, but then they throw in one sound that basically kills the whole thing. In other words, um, you know, they, they're, they're moving along just fine within their sequence. And then they finish with something that you're thinking a wild turkey hen would never make that yeah, why, sequence. Why did, yeah. Why did you throw that in there? And I hear it with elk too. I mean, out there in the woods, the guys just throw the kitchen sink at them. And I mean, that's just really not how wild animals, what I've heard them and witnessed them doing. Um, and, and so that's where a lot of times, whatever call elk or Turkey is where I can pick out a hunter is in their sequencing, in their cadence, in their timing, um, and how they string those different sounds together. Bingo. And and we all would agree that cow elk and you know hen turkeys make some odd sounds at times, but it, it you know they have a rhyme or reason to most everything that they do. Whereas I feel like the hunters um, with a mouth call, especially, just start making these sounds that are are not even close to to matching the situation and or what a, a wild turkey would do at that particular time. And, and I think there's a sense too, you know, there's, there's one sense that people just really want to study the behavior of Turkey and try and match their, you know, trick a Turkey with their call and all that. But then I think there's a whole aspect of elk calling and Turkey calling. That's all ego. 
I always want to say, leave your ego at the door. You do just enough to get the animal standing in front of you. Very, and, and I'm going off the rails here a little bit, but very <laughs> few <Go>. people, <laughs> very few people can check their ego at the door and, um, they just have to be the man. They, they literally have to be the one to say, I made that happen. There you go. I, you, okay. I, I made that happen. I called that go. bird in. I did this instead of like, well, you were set up in a good spot and you made a couple of really nice sounds that got that bird's attention, but you also let that bird seek you out and you did everything perfectly. It seems like most people, they just have to be like, I have to be the one that called that bird in. I have to satisfy my own ego to tell my buddies that he gobbled 30 times, you know, from 150 yards into 25 yards. And it's like, why, what, why can't you just call enough to have the bird come and, and, you know, come in looking and strutting and doing their thing you know, it, it just, it never ceases to amaze me how much ego has gotten into turkey calling and elk calling. No, it, dude, I think you, you what you just said there is a hundred percent, in my opinion, accurate. And what you said there made it happen again. I, how many times have you and I talked about it? And I've talked about with my elk stuff that you're never going to make an elk do anything except maybe run away. Same thing with a turkey. You're never going to make him do anything or that flock do anything except maybe run away. What you can do is put in their mind what they ought to do. And that's the thing is people forget the fact they're like, I'm going to do this and he's going to, you know, I'm going to make him do that. No, no. You might have been in a good location. You had a good decoy spread. You were camouflaged or hidden appropriately. And whatever it was that you were doing at that time for that bird in that situation with that population dynamics and, and his personality, it was in his opinion that he should come in right. and great. It worked for you, but I can show you also a number of times where no, the birds just stand out there 300 yards on the side of the hill. And you're like, mm, I'm not coming into that. And they just go back to feeding and the entire flock just moves off. Cause no, I we're, we're not, something again this is the other one this is the this is the perfect one too is um and i guess this segues to calling too much because i've been uh, uh, criticized for that sometimes the birds know where they need to be and where they want to be and they know what their daily pattern routine is and you get set up where you can set up because you're a hunter and and you have limited access points you've got limited cover to set up especially in your neck of the woods where you're hunting down in, in, in uh, Mexico, you've got those river bottoms and the Creek draws and the, the brushy corridors, but those birds will go way out in those open hilltops and, and uh, those open hillsides. Same thing with me. I've got ag fields. So I've got these ribbons of cover and these gigantic ag fields. Well, it can be difficult sometimes to set up where those birds naturally want to be throughout the day, where they're going to pitch out in a certain place and they're naturally going to want to go in a particular direction. Sometimes it doesn't matter how good of a caller you you think you are or what you think you're going to make those birds do. Uh, they're just going to do what they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. Now, to the point, I, I've, I've got a video on YouTube where I was just cranking on the calls. 
again, this was a situation where the I knew the direction the birds wanted to fly out. Number one, there was a bunch of hens. There was many, multiple, multiple gobblers in that group. It was an early season, gigantic flock to where I knew that I could sucker at least a couple of the gobblers out of that flock if I created a situation where they thought there was another group of hens that they could go down and engage with. Because from a behavior standpoint, if you've got those early season flocks and they're still all commingled, yeah, you're going to have a couple dominant birds in there and they're going to be, they're going to all pitch out together. They're probably going to go fart around for a little bit together. They're going to, you know, gobblers going to keep chasing each other around for a little bit, pecking each other, just trying to establish their dominance, you know, pecking order and stuff and, and, you know, figure out who's going to be with the hens. At some point, those two-year-old birds or the subordinate birds in that flock might go ahead and break away and then go seek someone else out. That's where, again, it's not that I made them do anything. I just put in their mind that, oh, crap, there's a whole bunch of other hens over in this other location. Rather than run around here with these gobblers and get my butt whipped, why don't I go over there and see if I can't you know, pick up some of these hens that are that, you know, maybe there's less gobbler pressure over there. So again, I'm not making them do anything. But again, I, I had to bump up the level of vocalizations I had. But it wasn't just me throwing everything at the kitchen sink or, you know, throwing everything but the kitchen sink at these birds. It was a more heightened level of still, again, the fundamentals and main making sure that my cadence and the realistic hen communication portrayal was still there. And, and again, I think it goes back to, I think this is why you do so well down in, in Mexico, why I do well out here. And I think the, the best turkey hunters are the people that have spent sometimes the most time either studying hens and listening to them, or they've just been in the field long enough to have been around a bunch of hens to where they just intrinsically have learned to identify and emulate what actual hand talk actually sounds like. You know, we, we talk about consistent cadence. We talk about, um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if we need to beat this dead horse, but I, I think if people just, I think if people focused on fundamentals more than just trying to get fancy or um, letting their ego get in the way, like you said, Jay, I, I think they'll just kill more birds. Yeah. And I mean, I think an, a, another word for fundamentals would be basic. Stick with the basics. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and don't get too shiny. Don't get too fancy. And work and spend more time on where you should set up and being in a good position and then make a few key sounds to get them interested in what you're doing is going to go a long ways and a lot further than someone that's real cocky and doesn't really focus on setup and thinks that a bird's going to, you know, literally leave the, the flock that it's with and leave that flock and come over because it's happened before they think it's going to happen every time. That's just not really the way it works out there in the wild. And I think people need to just spend a little bit more time on setup and positioning 
um, and, and let things be patient and let things unfold. Um, I, I think, I think they'll kill more birds that way. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and again, we've talked about this with elk and, and people ask, yeah, it just let your setup work. You know, it, we, we've talked about this and that, that, so, okay, let's, we don't need to keep beating a dead horse to death because quite honestly, between the two of us, someone wants to perfect their turkey hunting uh, there's two you're listening to two resources right now that i think there's a lot don't get me wrong there's a lot of resource there's a lot of great resources out there but if you just want you know to listen to us talk about turkey stuff go to j scott outdoors podcast go search for that seven part series that jay and i did a couple years ago on turkeys did you just did i I know you've referenced it. You didn't repost I mean, that lately. No, you? but I mean, people need to understand it's probably eight to 10 hours, maybe 12 hours of literally covering every, every single thing from roosting to setups to, yes. you know, just how to do it. And I get a lot of questions and I'm happy to answer the questions, but a lot of times I respond by saying, have you listened to the seven part series yes. and thoroughly exhausted that first? I'm happy to answer questions after you've done that. I've had yes. a few people come back and say, well, you're not going to help unless I listen to your stuff. It's like, well, actually I'm going to flip it around on you. If you're not willing to take the eight or 10 hours and invest the time in listening to us literally go through from point A to point B or A to Z, I should say of everything about you know, trying to kill a turkey, then, you know, there is no simple fix. You, you need to listen to everything that we talked about and everything that we went through in the tutorial. And then let's talk about your questions after that. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I answer questions on Instagram twice a week and, you know, anywhere from 50 to 150 questions um, per session. And there's sometimes when I just you know, maybe it's what I have going on throughout the day, but my, my fuse gets a little short because it's like you, you, you want this thing immediately, but you don't want to take the time to really invest and listen. And, 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 you know, and, and granted, some of them may not know that it exists, yep. you know, yep. but it is out there. I've posted it several times. I've replayed it several times. Um, and I feel like probably it's probably, one of the best series of just everything there is about turkey hunting. Um, and, you know, I think there's this misconception that, you know, oh, well, if I listen to it, you get paid and you, you know, it's, it's, you're going to get, you know, you're going to charge. No, it's free. Go on there and listen to it. You don't owe me a dime. You, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, it's free. My it's free. Go listen to it, go invest some time into it and then decide if, the question that you had got answered. And if, if you've listened to it, then let's go ahead and dive in, um, you know, to your question. And yeah. That, and, that, and yeah, no, it's your, and that's the thing is, and, you know, obviously my Turkey module on the, it is still a subscription deal and I'm going to be adding yeah, a and bunch it's phenomenal. of phenomenal. But like, that's the have thing. you it, gone through it and, and listened to all the sounds and have you exhausted that? Yeah. It, it just have, seems have you like gone people and watched want it and, yeah. a quick, quick fix. And it's like, it doesn't, it's, well, you know, here's, I'm to, happy to answer questions here. But, here's the thing. Here's the thing, Jay, what they want is they want to be told what to do. 
they don't want to understand why to do it. And, and I get this all the time. The, the people that do, I get very, very few criticisms on the elk module or the elk hunting Institute, but of the, the number one complaint I do get for people, because again, with the elk stuff, it's over 60 hours. So, or it's almost 60 hours now. So trust me, I understand there's a ton of information in there and people are like, oh my gosh, it's overwhelming. I, okay. It can be. Now, I put together a kind of a lesson plan and how you pick it apart. But the issue is, is no, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, okay, this is what you do here because there's so many different variables in the field that a slight change in the variables might change how I actually go about executing something or, or vocalizing something or setting up on something. So if I, if you just ask us a question and say, what do I do here? And I, and I, and if it's me or you just wait, Oh, this is what you do. Then they go out in the field and that's all they just boom. They just, they just, they regurgitate uh, a memorized, you know, item, so to speak. It may or may not have the desired effect based on the peripheral environmental conditions and the field conditions at hand. So when we tell you to go listen to this stuff, yes, it's eight hours on the podcast stuff. Yes, the turkey modules, there's, I don't know how many hours there is in there. Yes, go through and listen. Why? Because the question you just asked has a couple of different uh, aspects that are tied to it. We're going to talk about all those periphery aspects. So that way, when you, when you get through it, you're like, ah, not only do I know what these guys would do, now I know why. And that's what I've always hammered on all the row hunting resources stuff. Why? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are the turkeys doing what they're doing? Why are the elk doing what they're doing? If you understand the why of what they're doing, then you better understand what to do. And then again, why you're going to do it. It gives you much more, a high, a higher degree of adaptivity, adapt, adapt, geez, what am I trying to say? Adaptability and efficiency on the landscape. And that is what translates to filling your tag more efficiently. It's not your ability to just regurgitate and perfect a certain sound that Jay or I say, or a certain decoy spread that Jay and I talk about. It's, I understand the principle from where they're coming from. And I can take that principle and I can apply it to my specific situation rather than just, you know, just regurgitate. But that's the thing is, it's a fundamental different learning system and everybody's got to, I talk about value sets all the time is there's a different value set. Some people just simply want to be told what to do. I get this all the time with the elk stuff. Well, I, I know, I, I know you got a lot of stuff on the, elk, just, but just, just tell me what I just tell me what, what I need to do on calling. It's like, okay, man, I, I can't, I can't help you there, man, because I'm going to tell you it's not going to work. And then you're just going to turn right around and say, well, Chris Rose full of shit. You know, you know, that, that didn't, that didn't work. I, I'm going to go to someone else. And it's the same people that flit around from person to person to influencer, influencer, social media account here, but you know, just, they're constantly flitting around. And if you guys want to fill more tags, or just even if you want to have a more fulfilling experience on the, out in the field, even if you don't fill your tag, it's incumbent upon you. And, and again, this is Jay and I's value set, but I, we, we, we believe it because we've seen it. 
if you understand the basics, you understand the fundamentals, and you commit to understanding them and why those fundamentals work, you will be more successful. We talk about those fundamentals in Jay's podcast. I talk about those fundamentals in the Turkey Mantra. We help, and then how many freaking videos do you have on YouTube with your Gould stuff to where I know that they're short clips, but even there they can sit there and watch. If you if you just can't, and this is the thing. Well, you're going to get paid for it. Well, freaking hell yeah, I am. This is part of our job, man. This is part. You know, maybe it's not your job, Jay, but it's part of my job. And I and I've got to have a you know, YouTube's one thing, but when you when you put together an education resource and you host it online, well, guess what? I get charged per month or per year in order to have hosting on the, the website. This is what I do for a living. So yeah, kind of, I, I'd like to kind of pay my bill. I like, can I just at least pay for the web hosting? But anyway, but there's so <laughs> much information out there that folks can get on their turkey hunting that if they just start, and you don't have to swallow it all at once, just pick a couple of videos a night or, or during your lunch hour or whatever, just like, okay, just why? And don't just watch it to just enjoy the entertainment value of it watch it to say, okay, what are they doing? And what is the bird doing? And when I see the bird doing, what, what are the callers doing? And then go back and forth on that and just tease apart all those little details. What do you think? I think it's dead on. <laughs> all right. Let's, let's move. Okay. So let's move off of that aspect of Turkey calling right now. Um, because I do want to, and, and maybe we can lump the two of them together because the, the question has come up. Um, people see you all the time, you know, talk about your coos, deer, cows, white tails, uh, coos, deer hunts and the number of hunts that you're running. Cause how many, how many coos deer hunters did you said you had what 200 or more than 200? Yeah. Something like that. Pretty close. And how many Turkey hunters are you going to run this year? So we'll kill probably 175 to 200 Goulds turkeys this year. Okay. That is a massive, I mean, I've seen at least the part of it with the, with the turkey hunting part. And, and it wasn't even, when I was down there with you, it wasn't even as big as you've got it now. So I, I can, I understand a little bit of the logistics go through for, okay. I've got a couple of questions. How are a couple of questions come through all the time. How in the hell do you manage that many people in that short of a window? Because with, with coos deer, you're not only guiding people, you're also setting up DIY hunts. So how, how do you manage that many people logistically and not, yeah. you know, hang yourself off the balcony when it's all done? <laughs> well, um, the reality is I have a good team that, that works with me and that I work with, um, to a, you know, so we're able to get that, you know, big of a task accomplished. Um, the other part of it is I work all the time, nonstop, you know, people see me, you know, I'm in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina right now, but they don't see me working all the time. And I'm, I'm a worker. That's what I've been my whole life is I enjoy working. I enjoy building businesses. I enjoy, you know, I enjoy the process. Not only do I love the hunting, uh, but I love the business building aspect of those, you know, those things that I do. So, um, my wife helps me with a ton of stuff to keep organized. Um, I've been fortunate to be doing it a long time with the coos deer. You know, like I said, it was my 26th season, uh, with the, with the Goulds Turkey, this will be our 13th season. 
Um, when you've done it a bunch, it kind of helps, uh, you know, to have the repetitive nature of, of how to do it and how to organize and, you know, how to, how to, you know, acquire the ranches, you know, keep the owners happy, um, how to organize the people and, you know, getting down there, whether it be the DIY hunts or the fully guided hunts, um, you know, it, it's helped that I have someone that, that helps at my border crossings. Um, so, you know, can help with the gun permits, can help with the truck permits and, you know, keep each group organized. And, you know, I do Google earth maps, uh, you know, for all of the, uh, people that are coming down to hunt and, you know, I've got escorts that can take them from the, you know, from the border to the ranches. Um, and then I've got great guides on the, on the fully guided hunts. Um, you know, basically guys that are, you know, clones of me, if you will. And they basically do what I've done for many years and, you know, organize and, you know, take people from the U S uh, cross the border, drive to the ranch and, you know, go hunt, whether it be coups or whether it be Goulds. Um, and so the team that I've kind of formed, that's, you know, taken years to, to create, um, I feel like they're getting better every single year. I'm getting better every single year. And I think the, um, the whole process is being refined and, you know, there's always bumps in the road and there's always hurdles and there's always things that, you know, you have to do as a business owner to, to overcome and, um, I think we do a good job of that, but, you know, to answer your question, I think it comes down to, um, being able to execute, you know, have the plan in my mind of what and how we're going to do it. And then, you know, delegating and having, you know, talks with my guys and explaining how I want it done and how I expect it to be done. And, um, then we just go out and execute, uh, you know, it, it certainly helps when we have good properties, uh, both on the coos and the Goulds. Um, great properties, uh, you know, are key uh, and paramount for uh, you know an operation of this size to be successful. Um, because you know, quite honestly, you can't run this many hunters um, and and have you know mediocre properties because it will you know word will get out quick that. Um, you know, they weren't successful or something fell through the cracks. Um, so, I mean, great properties are, are everything in my mind, whether it be hunting in the U S or anywhere across the world, wherever you're hunting, the quality of animals, number of animals, you know, all of that plays plays into it, but very fortunate to have some really, really good properties in Mexico. Well, and that was going to be my, my the second question on there is how do you set, because yeah, you're running that many people now, you do have a bunch of properties and so that helps, but that's, how do you determine, well, let's, let's go off of what you just, what the last part you said about having good properties and, you know, you're obviously you want to have a, maintain a high level of success. Part of that high level of success is you're just not going to overhunt your properties and, and just rape and pillage, you know, on the landscape. How do you determine, you know, on the, on your, your coos deer hunt, how do you determine how many people you're going to send to a particular, you know, ranch? So a lot of it has to do with, you know, basically a formula of, I like to have one deer per 1000 hectares. 
Um, 1,000 hectares is two point, basically uh, 1,000 hectares is 2,400 acres. Um, obviously densities are higher and, and, and they're variable. They're higher and lower in some properties, you know, lower in some, higher in others, you know, medium density, high density, low density. Um, and a lot of it comes with just knowing the areas, knowing the properties, knowing what, what we've done on the properties in the past, um, you know, going off of feedback from what I get from, from guys. Uh, and, you know, when I get new properties trying to start uh, low as far as numbers of animals harvested until we can, you know, really get a sense of, you know, how good it is. Um, as far as the coos deer, we always say, you know, you, and Dar and I talk about it all the time. You really know, you really don't know what you have until you hunt that property during the rut. You can go there and pre-scout it in the spring and the summer and, you know, you know, look at the terrain, glassing, all of the stuff and, you know, and estimate how good it's going to be. And, but until you hunt in those months in, in those weeks in January, um, and actually see these deer running around on the hillsides, um, I always say you never really know what you have until it's rutting time. Um, and, you know, I just think experience plays into having done it a bunch, um, and having a good team of people to be able, you know, uh, guys that are finding me ranches and they, they've worked with me for years and know, you know, kind of other properties that I have, and we can kind of compare them to others. Um, but one of my biggest challenges is like having a group of, you know, four guys or a group of six guys or a group of eight guys and trying to then match that group up with a property um, that, you know, maybe the owner wants 10 tags, but I know that it should only do six tags. He wants to get paid for 10, you know, and trying to juggle the, the economics of making the owner happy and maybe paying them for 10, but realizing we're only going to shoot six. Um, and, and, and trying to get it all figured out where in the end it's a business and, you know, I, I want to make a profit and make it where it's doable to, you know, my time is valuable and, um, the hunter's time is valuable. So I want it to work out well for everyone. So, you know, sometimes there's times when a property just isn't going to work. Either the owner's asking too much money or he wants to harvest too many deer, uh, which ultimately means it's just going to be a one-year property. And, you know, that's, those are usually properties that I shy away from um, because it does me no good to get on a property, hunt it for one year, knowing that I'm, you know, should only be shooting five bucks. And instead we shot eight. And next year, when we come back, there won't be the quality of, of bucks that we want. Um, you know, I usually have to let those properties go. Um, when it comes to turkeys, you know, turkeys are one of those things that's a little bit easier than deer, because basically if you have a two-year-old bird, you know, that's a legal bird, not from a standpoint, any, any male turkey in Mexico is legal, but like if it has a beard and if it has a full fan and it's not a Jake, pretty much turkey hunters across the U S that that's a, that's a mature bird that people are tickled pink if it comes into the call. Whereas a coos deer, you know, a lot of times has to be five, six, seven years old in order to have the, um, you know, with genetics and age class, the whole thing for them to be a size of a deer that someone's going to say, yeah, I want to shoot that one. So, 
um, you know, turkeys, we can tend to harvest more mature animals than say deer. Um, you don't necessarily have to leave as many, um, for quote unquote breeding stock, because you're only trying to get, you know, those birds past the stake of being a Jake. Um, does that make sense to you, Chris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I keep going. Cause I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to segue here real quick, but keep going. Cause it, that's yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it comes down to experience. I've learned a lot over the last 26 years operating down there and, you know, learning different, uh, owners, personalities and learning, you know, certain areas in Mexico that can produce more than others produce, you know, more deer, bigger deer can rebound faster. Um, there's just, you know, so much that's gone into it. Um, you know, it really helps that I really enjoy Mexico. I enjoy the people. I enjoy the food. I enjoy the culture, everything about it. Um, but you know, to have these, you know, you know, I, I probably have, you know, five or 600,000 acres, um, leased down there, uh, maybe more actually how much I, five or 600,000 acres. Yeah. So it, it, it helps to have, you know, big properties, um, and they don't get hunting pressure. You know, they, they don't get, you know, some do, you got to watch that. You're not hunting a property that the Cowboys are shooting deer or that, you know, poachers are coming on and, you know, Cowboys from another ranch. And, you know, that's happened in a few occasions. Um, but for the most part, you, you know, you've got these pristine, you know, cattle ranches that, you know, the owners really don't, you know, mess with the turkeys, mess with the deer. And, you know, it's just an incredible opportunity for, for, you know, great, great, uh, experiences and, and hunting. Now are these, so are your coos deer ranches the same as your turkey ranches are? So I would say probably 25% of the coos deer properties are, are also Gould's properties. Um, there is some crossover, but a lot of the properties are strictly just Goulds and a lot of properties are strictly just coos. Um, just a rough off the cuff number would be, I'd, I'd guess, you know, one out of four or both, you know, gotcha. both coos gotcha. and, and Goulds. Yeah. And, and obviously some of these, I know just cause I've been down there with you, but these, you know, these are questions that kind of come back that I've had. And I figured we just have you address them because the other one I want, this one has come up um, and you know, I've talked about this and I don't think he minds us mention names because he's all over socials these days. So Dr. Mike Chamberlain has talked in the past about the percentage of toms on the landscape and what he sees as, how do I want to put this? I'm going to, I'm going to put it, I'm going to put it. I'm going to frame it how I perceive it. And I don't know if I perceive it correctly as far as whether he would perceive that to be correct, but this is how I perceive it. He talks about his opinion on what spring harvest should be on two-year-old or better toms based on what his interpretation of research that he's been involved with and others have, have, done that he's been privy to he talks about um in many areas he believes that way too many gobblers are being 
taken out of the population every year, especially they're being taken out of the population way too early. And his contention is, is because we're killing Toms too early in the season and we're killing the vast, the, 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 number of toms in a particular population uh two we're taking too many toms out of that population he has made the statement that that is part of what could be uh contributing to some of the population decline that we see turkeys across many of their across a lot of the the wild turkey range now I know Jay in, I think it was probably, if it wasn't in that seven part series, it's probably in one of our subsequent subsequent discussions. I I don't, I'm not going to say I don't believe him um, because there's a lot of validity to that. But then again, the flip side is, is I don't know the, the, to the level of significance, maybe I believe him. And I guess all I, all I would say is this. When you're down there on your Goulds properties, do you have a sense yet on, you know, like the percentage of times you're taking off of particular ranches? Because I, it, 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 let me, I don't, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. My, the qualification is you're dealing with massive landscapes, number one. You're dealing with massive private landscapes. And on these gargantuan ranches, you're the only one really as, because if we look at, you know, you can talk about uh, in a wildlife management standpoint, we can talk about compensatory mortality or additive mortality, compensatory mortality. For those who are not familiar with that, that means let's say you have a hundred critters on the landscape regardless of whether you hunt or you don't arbitrary numbers 50 percent of those animals are going to die regardless if you are out there hunting on that landscape or not if you do hunt on that landscape 50 percent of the population 50 percent of the animals are going to die your harvest simply takes the place of some other natural harvest or mortality so it's it, it compensates compensatory for other mortality that's on the landscape however additive mortality is in this particular population of 100 animals 50 animals are going to die from natural predation natural causes natural calamities etc but if you go on the landscape and you hunt any animal you kill will be in addition to that 50 that 50% natural mortality so every bird you take in in the case of turkeys some have argued that hunting mature toms is an additive endeavor where you're going to have natural mortality on the landscape and you can't do anything about it but the toms that you kill that a hunter kills is going to add to that natural mortality. So that's kind of where I'm coming from is it, you know, you are, because Jay, you, you're operating on large landscapes. You're the only one that's really contributing to human induced mortality on that landscape. 
So I know from being down there, there's many of those ranches that you're hunting year after year after year. And, and every year there's great bird numbers. So I'm curious, do you have a sense of, of how many, what percentage of toms you're taking off of the landscape as of yet, or in, in it, and I'm not judging and it's nothing, or, or is it just something that you don't feel that is necessarily a big concern for you? No, I mean, I definitely think it's a concern. And I think a lot of it, you said it before, and I've had some podcasts with Dr. Chamberlain as well, um, uh, is timing and when you're killing them. So in essence, if there's a two plus year old bird and you kill him at the end of, towards the end of the breeding cycle, he has done his part in my mind. And he has bred those hens because there's jakes between, you know, a year younger that will be in the two year plus category the following year. If you kill that bird in early for us down there is, you know, hunting them in early April in my mind is way too early because that those birds haven't had a chance to breed the hens. Whereas if you kill that bird in mid-May, they've had, you know, two or three weeks of breeding those hens. And so I feel a lot better about killing that bird, knowing that, um, he has done his part. I try and run trail cameras on the properties that I hunt and a rough rule of thumb is if I know there's say 50 gobblers on the property, I would feel comfortable harvesting half. So 25, if there's, you know, 12, I would be comfortable harvesting six. Um, and, and so I try and run trail cameras to get a sense of how many jakes do I have one-year-old birds for people that are, you know, new at this one-year-old birds, how many of those do I have? And then how many, what I would call mature gobblers, two years plus do I have? And we don't kill any jakes, uh, and we kill gobblers. And I typically try and kill 50%. Now, I had no, no uh, more than 50, no more than 50%. Correct. That's, that's what we try and go by. Um, I had Chamberlain on the podcast several times and we talked about, he told me something that I'm not sure he knows way more than I do, but I'm not sure that I agree with it in the Goulds in my expertise with Goulds. He's saying that there's, some, I believe this is what he was saying is that there's some gobblers that will only mate with some hens and there's only some hens that will only allow some gobblers to mate with them. My experience has been you kill a gobbler, the very next gobbler's right there ready to, to jump on and breed and, and mate with that hen. And he, she lets him. And, and she, she lets, lets him. them. He disagrees. Uh, he's coming down with me next year, by the way, um, nice. to hunt. So it'll be cool to have him down there and have him assess you know, have some chats about after he's been down there, but, um, I've also kind of taken a segue or just, you know, being at five years at the odd six ranch and then 20 years prior in Arizona and then hunting some of the reservations that I've been able to hunt with elk, you know, even coos deer, even elk, I've seen it where boom, a, a big buck gets shot. It happened this year on that big coos down in Mexico. Um, uh, Todd shot this big giant 130 inch buck and literally the buck was still wiggling 
and a little two-point, probably a two-year-old buck came and literally mounted the doe that that buck was chasing. I've seen same similar things where we've shot bull elk, where a small immature, you know, two-year-old five-point, three-year-old five-point has been on the edge of the herd. And now all of a sudden it runs right over and just literally mounts a cow. The, the Gould's turkey, in my opinion, I'm not convinced that what he's saying, and maybe I'm interpreting what he's saying wrong, but I'm pretty sure he said that there are some hens that cannot be bred. If you kill that gobbler, they will not allow any other gobbler to breed them. I am not sure that I agree with that because of what I've seen. I've seen number of times where boom, the gobbler goes down and all of a sudden you look over and here is a, a you know, little subordinate bird just literally mating the same hen that that gobbler was just right there with and mating before, you know? So, yeah, you know, I, I, I think, I think they're opportunistic. I think, you know, all male birds will do their attempt to mount and breed any hen that will allow them. And I, I have not seen it where hens are that selective. He says they are. So, I mean, I have to take them. He's done, you know, yeah. a million times more research than I have, but I, I would need more evidence to, to, to prove that to my own self, that, that what he's saying is, is true in that regard. And, and my interpretation of what he said in the past was that, you know, if you take the, especially if you take the dominant bird off of the landscape, then the hens basically are like, well, shit, we're going to wait until we figure out, you know, we're going to wait to breed until the gobblers figure out their next pecking order. And then when a, when a, a gobbler becomes a clear dominant out of this grot that this flock, then and, and the, the pecking order stabilizes again, then we will go ahead and breed. And that's, I would need more data to exactly. I, I just don't think that that's I don't personally believe with my experience with Gould's turkey that that is what happens. Now, you know, I, I don't yeah. have he's very well versed in you know eastern turkeys and Rio Grands and you know Osceolas and the other birds, but. In Goulds, I see them being opportunistic. I see them, if they get a chance to breed a hen, they're going to breed a hen, no matter if it's a, you know, what it is. If it's a Jake, if it's a immature little wispy, you know, barely a two-year-old bird that's, you know, just yeah, you know, can part barely of, gobble. Part, yeah, they're they're going to do their best to, to breed that hen. Because the other flip side is, is there's plenty of evidence that shows that out of a single clutch of eggs, there's multiple fathers in that clutch of eggs, which means they're breeding with multiple toms right. in the group that they're with. They're right. not, they're not just choosing that singular tom. Now, and that's where I would argue right there alone that they are not breeding with a singular tom. And if they, you know, if you kill that dominant tom, then that they're not going to breed that year. I just. I, I, I can't wrap my arms around that. I, I, I can't either. Um, again, he's, you know, like you said, he's a researcher and, and, but that, that's the thing is, well, heck, I, I just spent some time on a previous podcast of mine talking about, you know, research. And I mean, you, you've got, you've got bias in, in individual people, you know, looking at research, but, um, you know, maybe, you know, if, if the, and here's the other question I had too, is, okay, if you're going to make the argument that, Okay, 
taking the dominant Tom out of that group disrupts the pecking order of that group. Um, and it's, and it's only after that dominant, only after that new dynamic of the pecking order of that, of the remaining Toms gets figured out that there's breeding. Number one, that ha- that's going to happen. At least what I've seen that happens pretty darn quick, quickly, very quickly. quickly. Yeah. Number because one, it's, number- it's eat or be eaten out there and they, yeah, they react very quickly. I, we, I remember now having that conversation. I think you even called me after you listened to it and you're like, man, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, did. I don't think they can wait as long to establish the pecking order and maybe miss a full breeding season. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, I think those hens are made in a way that they need to be bred too. So they're, you know, yep. and, and, you know, we could probably have a great three-way conversation, you know, a debate or, or maybe get educated for sure from him sure. on that stuff. But, um, I just feel like they're opportunistic and they're going to, they're going to do what they have to do the hens to get bred. And number two, the, the, whatever gobblers left to, to, um, you know, get, here's, get what they can. Here's, here's my other argument with that. How many actual, especially when we're talking about Goulds, we're talking about Merriam's we're talking about, um, Man, I could, I, I think I could make an articulated argument about every subspecies of turkey, but let's just stick with the ones that you and I know best. Rios and Goulds, and we could throw Merriams in there in the mix as well. How many times are we actually pulling the true dominant bird? How do you of, know? No, well, okay, we we could have that <laughs> hold pin. That's a great question. Pin that for a second. Hold on to that. Um, because that, that's all, oh, see, this is why I love talking with you, man, because you segue to things I'm already going to go to, but, um, <laughs> put, put a pin in that. Um, but the flip side is like a lot of time, what you just said for, for a two-year-old bird. Okay. Most turkey hunters, they want a full fan and th- there you go. They, they want to see a full fan. And if it's got a beard sticking out and a full fan comes in, the birds hitting the dirt, you're hitting the dirt. Very very rarely do you have people, you know, have a bird, you know, a two, a, a full fan gobbler come in strutting around the decoys and people are like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, I need to see if he's a double beard or not. Or uh, how long are his spurs? Yeah, exactly. Or uh, does he have big spur? Ah, uh, boy, his spurs a little bit. And the hump on his on. back doesn't look very yeah. big. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, so, you know, like no, you do it, with an elk and try and age it. Most yeah, turkey hunters I know, no. if, it, if it's gobbling it is a full or fan. strutting, yeah. And full fan. Done. And like, they don't even care what the beard is yeah, and they it, just want to blast it. Yeah. Now, 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 okay. Devils. Okay. Let me, let me just qualify. If you have multiple birds come in together and there's one with an 11 inch beard and there's two others with, you know, nine inch beards, I'm going to shoot the 11 inch beard. Sorry. Gonna do it. You know, or, or let me rephrase that. If I'm going to shoot them both, (laughs) (laughs) if if, if a bird, (laughs) if a bird comes in and it's got it, let's say it's got a nine inch beard. And then there's two coming in with, you know, say a roughly six inch beard. Sure. I'm probably going to shoot the one with a nine inch beard. However, there is no, there's no statistical and this, I know to be true, but just because of uh, break beard, breakage, beard, rot, also, they might, the, the bird that has the shorter bird, beard actually may be an older bird. Uh, th- yeah, their beards 100%. are fragile. So, but there's no I, way to determine a no. bird, bird's age off of beard length. 
No. And so, and even Spurs, this is what has come out. You know, this is again from Chamberlain and others that have yeah. talked about with Bert or with, with spur length, you know, just genetics are what genetics are. Some birds just naturally throw a monster spur and other birds just really don't grow a, a, a big spur. So there, I understand that if a bird comes in and I've done it, if a bird comes in and there's a massive paintbrush of a beard on one bird and there's a skinny little pencil beard on the other one, I'm going to shoot the paintbrush. If there's one that comes in with big old spurs and one comes in with nubs, I'm going to shoot the one with the big old spurs. I'm not saying that we're not going to arbitrarily choose those, those external characteristics when we shoot a bird. However, what I'm saying is in my case, there's many times where I'll have multiple, I'll have five toms roosted with a, with a group of hens on a, on a roost. They all pitch out together and the mature toms in that, you know, the, the three plus year old bird, well, doesn't matter. Rephrase that. That was wrong. The dominant bird or birds in that group of toms ends up sitting out there and they are with those hens and they're not leaving. However, the subordinate birds oftentimes are the ones that I know I can call out. I can, they're not going to get any play. They're just going to be kept away from the hens. They're not going right. to get any they're easier pickings for you as a correct hunter because yeah. I can sucker them out of that flock and get them to come out and check my, uh, my decoy spread. Well, if my hunters go bang, bang and knock out two of the subordinate birds in that, uh, in that flock, I understand. It. Okay. I understand that when you make a change in any sort of, of structure, there's going to be you know, changes in that structure. But if you have a truly dominant bird or a pair of birds cooperating, cooperating together and you shoot two subordinate birds out of it, are, are you going to say that in the vast majority of occasions that now the dominant structure of those two dominant birds that are still with the hens has gotten screwed up and they're they're They've got to get things situated. And then not, I, I don't know that man. I, I don't know. I, I just, there's so many things that with that, and maybe it would, man, if you talk to him again, it might be a good conversation because I don't know some of this stuff. I'm like, some of it, I buy some of it. I don't for me, I, that's what I, you know, I talk about all the time. I just had the conversation with the, with our local game warden out here, you know, in, you know, Kansas bird numbers are down. It, it, I, I hate to say it. It is what it is. Um, but for some okay. reason, we're still part of the state that, you know, has, we could shoot two birds. And I'm like, why are we still, at a two bird limit when the, we, we are way down beyond what, you know, we've had in the past. And the answer is, well, we have more birds than everybody else. And what, just because we have more birds than everyone else doesn't mean we still can support a two bird limit because on some of my properties, we have the roost site. We have the bulk of the, uh, of the food in the, the daily movement area, but those birds will wander back and forth across, you know, say my neighbor, to the east and south and then two neighbors to the west where on one side i've got an outfitter well he's just going to shoot every freaking thing that he can if, if five birds come strutting into a setup and he's got two guys sitting in a blind that both have two bird you know two two tags they go bam 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 they could just shoot four out of the five that are in this area they they're not the hunters aren't going to know that likewise i've got my guys that want to come out and have a hunt my neighbor to the west of me, he, it's him and his couple of kids. Well, they want to come. They're, they're non-residents. They don't know anything. They are going to come out. They're just going to shoot whatever birds come in. And then my neighbor two doors down, at least I can talk with him, and it's him and his son, and we can coordinate. But 
man, if, if what, well, I, that's, we get into multiple rabbit holes. I, I don't like, I I'm with you. I don't like taking any more than about 50% of the mature birds that I know we have. So the conundrum is, is okay. Do I modify my turkey hunts and start scheduling my turkey hunts later to be sensitive to what Mike Chamberlain talks about with, with the biology, knowing full well, my neighbors aren't going to do that. They're going to, they're, they're going to come the hard in part. Yeah. That's the I, thing is that they're, they're going to come in as soon as they can. And they, they're going to just whack and they stack. know you're not hunting. They're going to be hunting your border and try and kill oh, yeah. the birds that you've been feeding all year. And yeah. You know, growing, they, provide they the nesting care. habitat. Yeah. Here's I'm going to, okay. This is me talking, <laughs> Chris, you're, you don't have to take any of this. Uh, send the emails to me. Um, the one thing that I really, really like about turkey hunting is it's true, pure hunting. It's, it's the joy of the hunt. It's not, what does it score? It's not how long the beard is. It's not how long the spear spurs are. It's a mature bird. He gets shot. Great. We had a great hunt. I say that as I'm one that's into scoring, into field judging elk, coos deer, all that different stuff. Not from a standpoint of beat my chest and I shot a big buck. To be into it for a standpoint of I'm accurate when I say a buck scores, it's going to score that. If I say a bull scores, if a ram scores, it's going to be close to what I say it is. I want to know so that as a guide, I can be accurate, right? Yep. One thing I love about turkey hunting is it's, it's a bird. It's a mature bird. It's a legal bird. Let's shoot it. We had a great hunt. We don't have to, I don't score. I don't measure spurs. I don't measure beards. I don't care. Okay. Send the emails to Jay Scott on the next statements. <laughs> Hunting has become about egos. Oh yeah. More and more and more. And it has gotten to a point that is almost sickening to me. We've got people that are turkey hunting and going and shooting 40, 50, 60 birds in a year. They're going to states and shooting five, six, seven, eight birds, whatever the limit is, and then move to the next state. We've got guys that are elk hunting and shooting countless bulls. They're on the platform of we're doing this for meat. No, you're doing it because you like to kill things and you like to hunt. You like the thrill of the hunt. You like to kill things. If you were just doing it for meat, you can't eat eight elk in one year. Devil's okay. advocate, devil's advocate. They will you see it. I know. And, and they will donate and they'll go and they'll share. And okay. So yeah, keep going. Okay, so in my opinion on the Turkey thing, the reason that turkeys are declining is we are shooting too many birds. And some may say, well, geez, Jay, you're about to shoot 175 to 200 in Mexico. Yeah. That's on 50 private ranches that are in excess five, 600,000 acres and managed for quality we're not just i could shoot three times the amount of birds at least twice the amount of birds that i am in my opinion this is my opinion turkey hunters a big chunk of them 
it's gotten to all about how many birds did you kill this year? And they're maxing out their absolute limit in every state and they're bouncing to the next one. And then in the same sentence, they're talking about preserving and conserving the birds. Doesn't make and, sense and, to me. And then the next breath is about how um, hunt satisf hunter satisfaction on public ground is going downhill. Right. It's you too know, crowded. So it's too, too crowded. crowded. And so, and I'm, I'm not necessarily pointing fingers at any one specific person. I'm talking to the masses saying, isn't there a point in time when we can say a couple is enough? and call that bird in and let them walk by and go bang. I killed you and let them walk on and let someone else shoot him. The National Wild Turkey Federation did an unbelievable job as well as other state agencies and what have you bringing these birds back and all across the country to great numbers that are great huntable, sustainable populations. But it just seems that now we're, we're, our Number one, we're killing our public ground. We're making public ground. We're, we're taking the experience of the public ground hunting out of it. It's become bad hunting because there's so many people doing it. And there's people that are killing their maximum. Yes. Are they legally allowed to? Yes. Are they doing anything legally wrong? No, they're not. But at some point in time, do we not have to look and say, we're the ones responsible for the future? Well, man, it, I'm just curious your no, thoughts, if, if I'm no, going I, off the rails or if my no. thought of, you know, do you need to kill 10 elk in a year? Why? You yeah. can't kill 10 elk in a year and say that you're doing it for me. You cannot. No, you're not. It, it, you cannot it, kill 50 or 60 turkeys a year. And then on the same saying the it, next say, sentence yeah. saying it's you're, you're there for preservation and conservation and, you know, yeah. sustainable populations of birds. No. Dude, can you, you kill four or five and then call in the hunt. next one and, and go bang and let them walk off? Or how about this? If you want to, if you want to have that experience of, of multiple call-ins and watching birds hit the dirt, take someone new or just go with someone else and let them be the one to pull the trigger. I, that's one thing I love about guiding in the spring. And that was what's as fun as hell about, you know, down with you is we're, we are killing birds every day, multiple birds every day. So we are getting, the guide is getting their fix, so to speak on, I call the bird in, put him right smack dab in the lap of that, that hunter and boom, that hunter filled their tag. Check that box. Up. I didn't need to pull the trigger because I'm the one to put the bird in the, in the, in the box anyway. And that's, that's the part of the engagement that I get out of it. That's my value set. I, I just want to be able to call that bird in, get him to work and then basically have a checkmate. You know, there, there is something intrinsically just satisfying about watching a Turkey just eat an entire face full of, of pellets. Okay. I'm sorry. I know that sounds bad, but I'm sorry. There's, it, there's something, what did Steven Rell? I think Steve said this and I agree with the whole part wholeheartedly. It seems like a turkey was built to just be shot in the face. Yeah, it's made and, to be shot with a shotgun in the face. That's, there's just something intrinsically just satisfying about that. I know that makes me an evil person, but yet I agree with you, uh, dude. And maybe, and we don't need to go 
down the whole rabbit hole on this one, because maybe what we do is when you get back, I, maybe I have you on and maybe, maybe you're the person we sit and have a conversation with, because I'm going to tackle this. Um, uh, yeah, there, there's so much to unpack on that because it's, there's, that's the it's thing. become so much about ego and it's become so much about, you know, how many did you kill? And I just, I, I gotta be honest, the older I get the the, the less I want to, the less I want to kill. Dude, and, and, uh, and, you know, people say, oh, he's getting soft or, oh, I mean, it's one of the things that I really enjoy about uh, fly fishing. I enjoy catching a fish and releasing that fish, knowing that true, every single fish that I release maybe won't live, you know, because the big argument is, well, did you know that, you know, out of how many catch and release fish, those fish actually yeah, yeah. die. Okay. How many live, how many of them actually live. And it's one thing that I really enjoy is I know that our brown trout fisheries are not sustainable. If everybody kept every fish that they caught, even if they went within the state limits and said, okay, I abided by the state laws. Well, I got to say, are we as sportsmen really doing the future generation, a, 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 the, you know, the correct service by killing everything that we possibly legally can do. No, I don't think we are. Yeah, this is good. This is going to be an entire freaking, uh, and maybe it's going to end up being a couple podcasts, man. And well, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying it to make people mad. I'm not no. saying it to point fingers at someone and say, what you're doing is wrong. What I'm saying is, I think we need to point the finger back at each one of us at ourselves and say, you know, is that the best thing for the resource? Is that the best thing for the guys that want to hunt tomorrow? Is that the best thing for guys, you know, for my kids or your kids, you know, or, or, or your neighbor's kids like, you know, Oh, well, Texas is a five bird state and, you know, I'm going to shoot five here and then I'm going to go here. I'm going to shoot eight here and I'm going to go here and I'm going to shoot four here. And, you know, really? Do you, I mean, like, I'm me, just me, not sure that that's the, the, the right thing to do with future hunting in mind. Yeah, dude, I, I'll tell you right now, let me, let me put a real, and, and this is the, to what you said, that the, the more I do this, the more I spent, it's, it's a, it's a man. Okay. Te, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And, and, Let's use this as a segue because this is perfect. Uh, Hold on. Ah, Uh, this person. And man, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your handle. Pomota, Pomata 56. Pomota, Pomata 56 asked, you know, a business slash doing what you love for a career. And I think Jay, this may actually kind of touch on, and I, I think that's probably a good segue out of, you know, it not because this, this needs to be talked about, but it's, it's, it needs to be talked about in a, in a, in a lot, in its own podcast. Okay. So, but this is, I think to your, to what you said, you know, as a guide, as an outfitter, it is, it is simultaneously sometimes the 
most freaking fun and rewarding job ever. And then it also can be some of the most disappointing and I'll use the word disgusting endeavor ever because you get to see a lot of different people who have different value sets. And, and I'm going to, I don't care about skill sets. I really don't. I, that everybody starts somewhere on their skill set development. And so there's beginners and there's experts and there's everything in between. I don't care about skill sets. I'm talking about value sets and how people think, how they behave and what their subconscious decision-making process is. So it can be great and it can be disgusting, but I will tell you, the more I run hunts, sometimes the less I just want to run hunts because to, to put a, a, a quantitative, well, let, let me, let's just do this. You're booking up uh, again, you're booking a lot of hunters. They want to come down and they want to collect a, a ghouls. No one, and this is not a slight against Jay and Jay knows this, but no one's going to Mexico to shoot a ghouls turkey because they want the meat. You can't take the meat back across the border anyway. So you're not going to ghoul, going to Mexico to shoot a ghouls to, to collect meat. You're, you're going down there because you want a set of feathers. You, you want the experience of killing a different subspecies of critter. That's awesome. I mean, and I have no problem with that. But when I look at on my operation, so in my area of Northwest Kansas, we can shoot two birds and all the other outfitters around me, they're booking two. If a, if a hunter wants to book a hunt, they're going to be like, hell yeah, book me two birds. I, I want, I want to book with, for two birds. Absolutely. Check box. I've got you booked for two birds, which is going to be a higher, higher uh, fee, you know, hunt fee coming in. For me, knowing what birds I have on the landscape, knowing what I have pressure of the outfitter and other, you know, hunters around me is going to be, knowing that we are at a lower turkey population just across the state, let alone this region and, my, and around our properties, we've got fewer birds than what we used to have. So I don't hide anything on my hunts on my website. If you go to my website and you want to have a, a hunt, whether it's a deer hunt or a turkey hunt, you can go to my website, you can click on the guided hunts and you can click on it and you can find every stinking piece of information there. How much I charge, how it's split up, what do you want to do for your 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 housing, your food, all of it. It's, it's transparent. It's right there. You don't have to call me so I can put you on a, a mailing list and then, but no. The, the number, so I limit our hunters to one bird each, unless during their hunt, depending on the point, the, the, the part of the season we're in and depending on what the weather is and the birds on the landscape, et cetera. If we have more birds than what it looked like we were going to have coming out of the winter, then I will on a case by case basis, allow a hunter to upgrade to that second bird. Since I made that policy change a couple of years ago, the number of people that want to book a hunt with me has plummeted. I can't tell you the number of people that I get messaging me wanting to come out and turkey hunt with me. And then I say, yep, absolutely. We'll book you for one bird. And then, well, we want to book for two birds. Okay. I understand that. But given the, 
I'm being truthful. Nope. I want two. Okay. The hunt experience is exactly the same. Why the two? And now understand, I, I know it's fun. I, I mean, I know it's fun, but if we're out there for conservation and I'm managing our properties for long-term conservation, then you would think people would be like, holy shit, I'm going with Roe because that guy gets it. No. Uh, now, I'm, I'm going to have, a, 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 by the time we're done here in the next several days and me getting my, my schedule locked in, I'll, I'll probably have the full complement of hunters that I want to take. But in the past, I used to be able, when, when we had the birds running, the, the, you know, the, the number of birds that we used to have out here, I literally could go from opening day to the end of May and pretty much run three, like Jay, like you guys in Mexico, you guys are on a three-day cycle and it's just turn and burn. I mean, there's so, you're, you've got so much, the logistics are horrible, not horrible, but they're just (laughs) challenging. Yeah. There you go. Challenging is better. I could do the same thing out here when we had the birds that could support it. The problem is, is I could still book hunts this way. I could tell everybody that comes in and say, I want to go for two birds. Absolutely. Book it. Bam. Book it. Bam. Book it. Bam. And then what do we do? What? We either rape and pillage our birds in one season, and then I got nothing for the next year. Or what? We we just have 50% success rate, which then, you know, my rating, people are like that, you know, there's only a 50% success rate. Well, that doesn't look good for, for people to book. It's just, it's like, man, dude, trust me, man. I, I'm, I am, I am frustrated with sportsman behavior again. And this is what I trust me. I've been, I haven't gotten a lot of criticisms. I've gotten a lot of people that have thanked me for having some of these honest conversations I've been having lately, but I will say I've been watching a few people pull away from me being critical of the sportsman community and Again, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole right now because this is this is a, an entire discussion. But to that uh, person's question, man, there is a. I will just say this: I love my job. I love doing what I what I do. However, I will say it it does change the nature of your perception and passion for doing what you love because it, then it, it also becomes a business. And I don't know, it, it's, it, it changes things, but to Jay, to, to, to go back to what you said, yeah, man, there's so many times I look at it now and I just kind of shake my head and I'm like, why the hell am I even doing this? You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's certainly days like that when, you know, you have things happen that, you, you know, you question what you're doing. Um, you know, and I think we get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly um, with what we do in people. And I think anytime you're dealing with people, you do get good, bad, and the ugly. And, yep. you know, sometimes you get bad things and ugly things that happen with good people. So, you know, it's not necessarily every person that you come across that you have a bad encounter with is a bad person. It's just maybe they were having a bad week or a bad day. True, um, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, it's, 
when, when you're, you know, it, there, it, when, you're, some... when you're, sorry, when you're, when you're seeing dozens, if not hundreds of people, you, you, your, your odds of running into those individuals that have a completely different value set than you are increased that, and that's why we run for me personally, I always give difference to deference to the repeat clients. They want to come back out. I've got families and, and the, the book every year because, oh yeah, they're, they're of the same value set and mindset. And it's just freaking fun, man. Some of the, some of, and you, I mean, hell, I've been with you on some of the youth hunts down with you and man, they're fun. You get somebody that's new, you get somebody that's, that's inexperienced. And this is kind of, especially Jay with your deal with, with the birds that you have down there, there are people that have hunted 20 years, hunted Turkey hunted for 20 years that have not had the behavioral interactions and the Turkey action that you can put them on in literally one, two, three days. Well, and honestly with the Gould's Turkey, the, the resounding comments that I get, um, the overwhelming comments that I get are Jay, I've hunted turkeys for, you know, fill in the blank five years to 50 years. And I've never had the interactions. I've never seen the quality of hunting, the quality of gobbling, strutting. I've never seen that in all of my years of hunting. If I had this, you know, this is just the way it is. I hear it over and over and over and over. It is absolutely phenomenal hunting because of the encounters, because of how the birds work, because of how they act, because of, you know, they don't, they're not getting pressured and it, it's unbelievable as a guide for someone that, you know, is able to see that and have all of those encounters throughout a season. It, it's awesome. I mean, I can't replace that with anything. Um, I, I got a kick the other day about, you know, I try and post clips, uh, on social media of the birds showing the Goulds doing what Goulds do. And someone got on there and said, good luck. You'd never be able to kill a bird in Pennsylvania. Our birds would never do that or whatever state it was, some state back East New York or whatever. And I responded of, Hey man, you know, I'm just trying to portray the phenomenal birds that they are and the encounters that I see every single year. I cannot help it that you get one or two encounters a season and you kill your birds at 50 or 60 yards at a long distance. As soon as you see a red head, you blast it and you're sitting here scoffing at me because I've got hours and hours and hours of hundreds of birds that are standing at the decoys for 30 minutes and pecking the paint out of the eyeball. Like, I don't know what you're trying to say. Like you're trying to say, this isn't a cool clip because these birds don't get pressured. So therefore they're, you know, it's not the same. It's not equal. I've never said that a bird that's down in Mexico that never sees a human being. And if he does, it's somebody riding on a horse is the same as someone here in South Carolina, where the properties are fairly small and they see and hear people and barking dogs all the time. They're different birds. I'll be the yeah. first to admit that, but you can't take away from the clip itself or the experience itself that that bird has given the joy, whether it be to me or the hunter, 
when you're hunting birds that are extremely pressured and you may be getting a, you know, a one or two encounter per 30 day season. Yeah. And we may be getting, you know, 12 bird, 12 gobblers in shotgun range a morning. Yeah. Just like I get sometimes the same response. If I post something from the Ot six ranch, Oh, it's a private ranch. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. Yeah, it is. I'm not saying that this hunting's tougher or harder than OTC. I'm not saying anything. I'm just posting a clip and isn't it cool? Like, look what the animals should be acting like because it doesn't get pressured. And then look at the animal that's on heavily pressured ground and you can't even hardly get a video clip of them. Correct. The, pe- the number of people that like, have, have complained these past couple of years of my elk, they're like, dude, we're not, you know, why aren't we seeing any more elk videos? And why I'm like, dude, I'm trying, man. I'm hunting public ground over the counter units. Like you are everyone else is. I'm, it's not that I'm like not trying. It's just, uh, I'm dealing with the same stuff you are, man. It's just, right. it's, and just, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of not those like things I just, that you'll yeah. never hear me say that, that, you know, elk on the Ox six ranch or elk on the San Carlos Indian reservation are harder or the same to call in as a pub, public land, public land, OTC, Colorado or Montana or Idaho elk. No, but don't sit there and, you know, look at this beautiful video clip of an elk bugling or doing something or a turkey strutting and gobbling and pecking at a decoy. And, and, you know, it, it just frustrates me sometimes how short-minded some people are in the fact that, you know, their hunting is much tougher. So therefore their, their, uh, experience or their, you know, getting that one bird is worth more than the bird where, their experience you know, is more righteous than yours. Yeah. More righteous. Like if there was a, yeah. you know, a, morally a righteous, superior, yeah. yeah, more morally superior or righteous, you know, quality to it. It's just like, you know, I, I'm just super blessed in a lot of the hunts to hunt in places where, uh, they can do their own thing and act like a normal Turkey should act, act like a normal coos, act like a normal elk. And, you know, it's, it's just very enjoyable. All right, well, let's, so I think we've tackled a whole bunch of turkey stuff. And again, I know that because there's a, there's several different people that, you know, that had chimed in and, you know, what, you know, what's this or what's that, or what do you think about here? Go listen again, go listen to those, that seven part series that we did. Um, and that, Jay, I'm not making you do any more work, but if I'll you, try and find it for you so you can yeah, um, maybe link it up in your show notes or something so that that they know where to find it. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there you go. Um, but, and then let's put a pin on that discussion because I, I do think it's, it's, here's the analogy and I'll, I'll just make the analogy and then we'll drop this discussion uh, and then save it for a different date. So I was thinking about how to, con- how to frame the context lately about why I've been talking about some of the sportsman's issues that I've been talking about. And I think it comes down to this because there has been increased activist pressure, uh, uh, this, this massive flurry lately of anti-hunting slash animal activist um, pressure uh, at, you know, commissions and state legislators and governors and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, blah, blah, blah. 
there has been this recent uptick in sportsman's advocacy and, and getting people fired up about being, you know, getting sportsmen getting fired up about um, getting out there and being in, you know, positive advocates for hunting, which is good. And there are some more podcasts and more people uh, showcasing all the benefits that uh, sportsmen do. And, and the, the beautiful thing about the North American model of wildlife conservation, and, and that's awesome. And, and, and it's, and it's, it's, it, it's what needs to happen. But I kind of look at it like if we look at the North American model of wildlife conservation as a house in a neighborhood, we have this new um, push, it seems, by some people to stand out on the front porch of that house and broadcast to the neighborhood Look at all, look at what our house, the North American model of wildlife conservation, look at what our house, look at what we've done as far as improvements of our house. Look how good our house looks. Look at the, look at how beautiful the siding is and the paint job is and look at our beautiful porch and look at our beautiful manicured front yard and, and look at how beautiful our, our house is and look how much benefit we are doing to the neighborhood. We want you to see our house and we want you to uh, we want you to value what we've done and we want you to do the same etc cetera, etc cetera, and, and broadcasting to the world how great our house is meanwhile in the backyard and in the house are all the sportsmen and women and everyone we're out there barbecuing and swimming in the pool and having a good time and 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 our world is it's awesome the problem is is next door neighbor is the anti-hunter the next door neighbor on the other side is the environmentalist activists. They have their house too, that, that they live in. And unfortunately, like a lot of subdivisions these days, those houses are like right next door to one another. They are like right on top of one another. And guess what? The problem is, is the animal activists from their house can look from their house into the windows of our house and they can see all sorts of shit in our house getting swept under the rug. The problem I have, not problem. I think it needs to go both ways. If we're going to broadcast to the world, hey, everyone, pay attention to our house. Look how great our house is. And we want to invite you over to our house and we do. We want more people to come into the house. We want more people in the backyard. We want more people in, in, in our, our property. We better damn well clean up the shit that's in our house, especially the shit that gets swept under the rug. And so some of these discussions, I will let the other people chime, you know, broadcast from the roof and shout from the porch how great we are. We are. I love our house. Our house is, I think, the best looking house in the whole neighborhood. And I wish everybody in the neighborhood would take a look at our house and be like, Frick, that, that thing's awesome. And I want to do what they're doing. And I want to support that type of movement across the landscape of this neighborhood. So everybody's house looks better. But man, if we're going to invite people in the door, we better not turn a blind eye to what we've got in our closets and swept under the rug because the activists next door, they don't want, they don't like our house. They don't like us. 
They don't want us in the neighborhood. And so, no, they're not going to look at the nice paint job. They're not going to look at the nice flowers. They're not going to look at the, all the fun that's going on in the backyard. And quite honestly, the more fun we have at our house, the more it pisses them off. So they're just going to keep pointing at what? They're going to point at the shit that's getting swept under the rug that they see us dragging into our closets. So my lately discussions have been of, okay, let's have honest conversations about what goes on in the sportsman community. And let's have some of those difficult discussions to your point, Jay of, yeah, if we're looking at, and and this is, this one has been, I've got, there's, I've got stacks, stacks of notes, but I was going to just tackle it myself because I didn't think anybody else had the balls to come on with me (laughs) and do it. But I would love to have your take on some of these things because, you know, non-resident hunting is always a huge thing. Every resident hunter, almost not every, the vast majority of resident hunters in every single state has a problem with non-resident hunters coming to hunt your state. Meanwhile, even though they're going to other states to hunt and be a non-resident over there. So it's like, okay, what the freaking hell, man? What's, what's the hypocrisy here? You know, so right. a lot of this stuff that you talked about, especially if we're going to get into R3 and trying to get more hunters in, you know, get people hooked on it to where they want this to become a part of their, their, their value set and lifestyle. I think these, these discussions need to come up and it, and it comes up and, and I had people ask about, um, you know, equipment uh, and, and limitations on equipment that I just had the conversation with, uh, Ryan Carter about the game cameras and it was a good conversation. Everybody loved it, but I, I did get a couple of people who are like, well, that was awesome. And I really, really like it, but you should have someone on that's on the, you know, the pro limitation, you know, basically for that. And so I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm trying to find some folks now and I'm going to talk to some folks and see if we can get them to come on. And, um, I, I think it'll be a good discussion, but these type of discussions I think need to happen. So to you, Jay, I, a, I'd love to have you come back on and, and talk about that type of stuff. And then B quite honestly, I'm not getting a lot of hate mail for it. Now, maybe, maybe people are just, they're not saying anything. And maybe there are going to be some people that pull away. And you know, cause I did, I, I had some folks lined up from some national organizations that wanted to come on and talk. And I don't, I, I don't know. I, I have no, Let's just say all of a sudden the, the communication went away. So I don't know if it's just they're just so busy they can't do anything or they've heard me talk about some of this stuff and they're like, mm, I don't know if I want to get in back. Hey, whatever. But I think more the, the thing that I've been seeing is and based on the comments I'm getting. Your concerns, Jay, and your observations are not an anomaly. And, and they are, and I don't even think, my opinion, I don't think they're the minority. I think they're secretly becoming the majority, but we just haven't had, in my opinion, the, I'm not going to say leadership because there have been some, I don't think we've had the, I don't think we've had adequate numbers of people willing to have the emotional an intellectual maturity to tackle these difficult conversations in a, you know, just a, a, an honest way, you know? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things at play. The, the, the thing is, there's really no right answer. And there's really no, there's no definitive right or wrong or correct or incorrect. 
but I think internally as a group of sportsmen, we have to continually look at what we're doing and, and say, you know, is this, is what we're doing right? Do we need to maybe shift our, our, our thought process? You know, maybe we did that for many, many years and you've come to a point where you realize that, Hey, maybe things need to change. Maybe things have changed. So now you need to adapt and now you need to change your mindset a little bit. I just think, um, you know, it's, it's something that is important to have those real conversations. And let's face it, sometimes having real conversations have consequences. Sometimes having real conversations, you know, mean more to some people and less to others. And maybe it means you get thrown into a certain category or, you know, you get grouped in with, you know, this group or that group, or you get, you know, the reality is or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just have to, you know, I, I try and promote hunting and fishing as much as I possibly can, because it's given so much to me. And I would love it if other people could get the same amount of enjoyment that I've gotten out of it. And so I try and constantly look at what I'm doing and ask myself, you know, what are you doing? Are you helping people? Are you pushing and furthering the sport? Are you pushing the tradition? You know, is this something that, you know, you can feel proud of after a career and, and, you know, of hunting your whole life and fishing your whole life and, you know, did you leave the place better than the way you found it? And, you know, there's, there's so much there. And I think, you know, there's so many things at play, you know, there's so many people that are involved with, you know, sponsors and they're involved with organizations and they're involved and they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want to say something that, you know, because our society has become so, you know, you have a little different opinion and all of a sudden you get blackballed or get, you know, blacklisted and, you know, stuff you said gets totally taken out of context. And it's like, or I, I never or, really meant that. I never really said that. Well, you said it. Well, that's not what I meant. Or you, or you censor yourself and you don't say what you know to be true because, right, because you, you can't. Yeah. And, and again, we let's go back to that question that came in about, you know, mixing, you know, doing, you know, having a career in doing what you love. Now, if it's, you know, Jay, maybe it's you with real estate. Okay. That, that might be a little bit different or, you know, obviously any business owner that, that is doing their business, hopefully they're doing what they love. But what I interpreted this is, you know, there's a lot of people that want to get that job in the hunting industry. And man, that's the thing is, you know, Jordan Peterson, I think is the one who, and maybe he's just repeated it and, and maybe somebody else made the quote but basically it's something along the lines of if there is something to that if there's something that needs to be said and no one say it says it essentially that's a lie you're, you're living a lie and i see a lot of times in this industry where like you said man there, there's so much there's so many sponsorships there's so many advertisers there's so much economic gain there's so much prestige there's so much ego there's so much popularity that's tied <clears throat> to an image that I think a lot of people, if they do say something and it, it, it gets taken wrong, it could cost them everything. So a lot of times 
they just don't say anything. And so this just, this, it just keeps getting, the can keeps getting kicked down the road and, and everybody just kind of heaps going on hoping that no one notices it. The problem is, is people are noticing, people do notice. And to your point, um, no, geez, oh, PW, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, and you said something there that I think to be true, unfortunately, no one likes to do it. And you said about adapt and, and change. Um, no one likes to change. No, no one likes to, to, you know, the, and I said this on with Josh Benton, I think, uh, or I think that's who, I think it's pretty much Josh Benton, you know, true personal growth comes when you're tired of your own shit. And so a lot of times in order for us to latch onto and value change in our lives, it comes with an experience that has opened our eyes. And sometimes that experience is less than enjoyable. It's, it's a, it's something that triggers a deep emotional response. And you said, you know, adapt to change. I think that's the case. I, I think we as sportsmen are going to, especially in the world in the, in the day and age of um, social media. And you and I just spoke privately, I think about, you know, Matt Ranella's, you know, and, and the discussion with, with the Ranellas on, on what his thoughts were, but hunting in general is a selfish endeavor. Um, the vast majority of us that hunt and, and live this lifestyle do it because it, it provides us something individually valuable. And we have an intrinsic individual um, connection to it. Now, some people have transitioned that selfish value, that selfish endeavor into, say, mentoring kids and mentoring new hunters and, and channeling that into getting more people involved. But there are still a lot of us that still our motivation is simply, I want to kill, uh, you know, this, or I want to go after and do this. And I want this experience. And, and, or to your point, Jay, I want to go hunt five different Western States and kill five different bull elk. And I want to go to five different West, five different States. And I want to kill, you know, 10 turkeys this spring. There's going to have to be some discussions in there. If we want to grow hunting, if we want to make everybody is clamoring and you've seen it, you, you told me the other day that the demand for your type of hunts that you offer is going through the roof. And I, I believe you because the exact same thing is happening on my side, notwithstanding the, the, the fact that I limit my turkey hunters to one bird, you know, that has put a damper in, in some of the demand, but the demand for people wanting a high quality hunt experience is not going to decrease it's going to continue to exponentially increase. And so, well, we and, and, and you look at the amount of, you know, everyone is, I shouldn't say everyone, there's a huge push for public land hunting and public land, you know, public land owner and public land, you're a public land owner. And therefore, you know, this, this idea that everything within that is yours and you can do whatever you want with it. We're basically taking it, for lack of a better term, in, in a lot of cases, we're raping and pillaging public land 
so much so that it's making the quality of experience for those hunters on public land so bad that they're going to not want to hunt anymore. And, and how do you get new hunters hooked on it? That's exactly right. Because and most so, of the new hunters are maybe not going to have access to private land initially. Um, right. And we've put so much pressure on public land. Then the next thing you hear is how bad private land owners are because the, the elk are using the private land as the sanctuaries. And I want to say, well, yeah, because you've made it over the counter and then you've promoted public land hunting so much so that you've pushed every single animal onto private land. And then the private land is just sitting there where they're going to go where the path of least resistance is like, and, and then they we've complain. almost, we've almost created our own problem. Like, we, 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 we did create our own problem. And, and then the flip side is, is those same people will bitch and complain when someone has access to the private land. They, or they or when the, the or state agency pulls back tags from yes. those public lands and say, we have to limit. And they're like, wait a minute. I've always hunted over the counter tags on this, this unit. And it's like, yeah, until we've jammed a million people in there and shot everything under the sun, there's nothing left. Well, let me ask you that. Let me ask you this question because it, it is, yeah, I mean, this like is I, I want nothing more for great public lands, great private lands, great animals and all the way around. But the reality is this, this giant public land, we all own. Yes, we all own the public land, but we have, have we done a real good service to that public <laughs> land? I'm not sure the answer is yes. That's I, I, why I'm not a fan of the, the hashtag public landowner. You know what? Guess what? I am a landowner and I work with landowners. I know what it actually means to own and take care of and be a steward of the land. And I'm, I watch a lot of us hunters. I'm like, mm, you can use that hashtag all you want, but Anyway, here's a question for you, Jay. Do you, and I've asked, I had this conversation with somebody else, and, and, but what's your thought? Do you think, do you think over-the-counter hunting has a future? Do you think that will be a part of the landscape 10, 20 years from now? I don't know how it can be. I agree, I, man. I really don't know how it can be. I, I, you know, and, you know, without having statistics, and having studied statistics and harvest data and all that stuff, I don't have that data, but from what I've perceived and from what I hear and from what I see, I don't know how over-the-counter hunting can exist in five years <laughs> when you don't have anything to hunt and it is a horrible experience. What have we done? Yeah, dude, I'm telling you, this it's is no different than having a fishing pond and you just surround it and you just fish, 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 and you catch every single fish and you keep every single fish. Cause that's the thing with and hunting. You it's go, consumptive well, use. Wait a minute. Right. Yep. Where's there's no fish. Yeah. We, we, we caught them all and we ate them all and we kept them all. And this was our pond. And this was our pond and it was beautiful and it was full of fish. And, but we couldn't control ourselves individually and say, man, maybe one's okay. Maybe I shouldn't take five, even though the limit's five in the trout pond. I took five and I came back the next day and took five and I came back the next day and took five. Well, the foot. Okay. So then let me ask you this then. 
And and this in this this on again obviously we've transitioned to non-resident hunting, but well no 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 public land hunting. But uh, but I my segue was going to be given the fact that state agencies put a reliance so heavily on uh, let let's just put the western states a lot. Well, I can't say that anymore. Maybe how do I want to put this? A lot of western states. Well, again, the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation, our, our state wildlife agencies are funded largely in part by hunting and fishing dollars. And so if we, if some like, uh, let's just take Colorado, that really does put a high value on the non-resident hunter dollars. Do, do it, given, ha Here's man, this might be a different Chris, Colorado has killed the golden goose. It's dead. It's gone, man. It's I gone. I, I, I do you think the North American model of wildlife conservation can sustain itself the way it has in the past? Can, can, can sportsman's dollars continue to fund the agencies at the level the agencies need? Now we're not going to have a conversation. I think agencies need to learn to tighten their belt and go on a diet and start working out and, and start catering. I, I to worry other that the quality of hunting gets so bad that the answer to your question is no. I agree. That's my fear. I agree. I agree. So that's the challenge that I see with where we're going is when we've run every single animal off and we've killed them all and we've pushed them all the private ground. What have we really done? Well, let's, uh, then I, then I do, I want to, then maybe that's what I do is when, when we get out the backside of Turkey season and, you know, you and I are sitting in the summertime, you know, twiddling our thumbs with nothing to do. Um, <laughs> let the, the, let's have this conversation again. Cause I, I, like I said, I've got a, I've got a pile of notes, man. I, there's, there's so many different ways we can skin this goose if you you know, if you want, but. Well, it's, it's just something that needs to be talked about. And I think, Everyone that listens needs to form their own opinions and needs to figure out what that balance is for them and, and what, what they think is right moving forward. And then I think, you know, we do need to collectively come together and say what is best for the future, what is best for the tradition, what yeah. is best for the public land, what is best for the animals that inhabit those public lands and, and figure out where we go from here and understand that sometimes things need to change. Sometimes things need to stay the same, but it's okay to every few years or every day or every 10 years, like there's no set time to look back and reevaluate and say, where are we? Where have we come? Where are we at now? Where do we want to be? And yeah. if, if that requires a change, if that requires a change in mindset, if that requires a change in policy, then be able to look at it and put your own self um, selfishness or your own self desire of, I want to kill 10 elk on public land every year, or I want to kill 40 turkeys in every state, you know, and max out the limit. Like sometimes you have to give a little. Well, and that's, that's the point of what you said earlier. And what I was talking about, you know, when you said, uh, you know, adapt and change, you know, I, I was saying, you know, uh, for a lot of us that, that 
value for hunting is an individual, you know, type of value. Um, I think there could be an argument made and I understand full well the connotation of what I'm about to say as someone who's a constitutional conservative and, and I have zero use for progressive ideology and socialist, communist, Marxist ideology. I think if we start, I, I think an argument could be made that in order to maintain the North American model of wildlife conservation and this beautiful house that we live in, I think we're going to have to see possibly hunters start developing a different value set and a different mindset and, and a mindset, one of not an individualistic value set, but a more community value set, the, the sportsman slash hunting community mindset, because if all the people that get pissed off about animal activists, about environmentalists, the reason why oftentimes they are successful over time in their efforts is because the, the nature of their cause is collectivist, is it, it identifies with many people and their value sets. And those value sets are not selfish value sets. Those value sets are intrinsic, more in their mind, moralistic value sets that transcend the individual's, you know, own feelings. And we all, they all coalesce around an idea and they all work together for a common goal. Even though individual activists and individual environmentalists may not have the exact same mission and the exact same ideology, they, they coalesce around an idea and they'll drive that idea forward. I, I think we, we, can, we can bitch and complain about what activists and, and environmentalists do, but we might want to start taking a lesson from why do they seem to continually just whittle away and whittle away and whittle away and have this success and this, this growth of people following that ideology, I think sportsmen are going to have to take a, a look at and say, okay, how, how, yeah, how, how, do we, how do we continue the North American model of wildlife conservation for the greatest number of people over the greatest amount of time, even though whatever comes out the other end might limit my ability to go play in the sandbox or swim in the pool in the backyard. You know what I mean? Absolutely. All right. You cut, man. I'll keep talking all day long, but there was, so we haven't even, I haven't even taught, geez, I got like, I don't even know how many, we haven't even touched on half the conversation, but half the, again, like I said at the beginning, most, most, most of the people that, that responded to my question are like every, every question is its own podcast. But let, I tell you what, man, let's, let me wrap up. Let me wrap up with just a couple of things that I, that, oh, 
We'll save. I wanted to bring up the odd six and I want to have a, a good discussion with you on the odd six, but how about we table that until after Turkey season, because that's when you're going to start running your game cameras anyway, and, and start sharing stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll table the hot six stuff right now. So there here, here we go. Let's, Sounds let's, good. let's, let's have fun a minute. I, there was a, there was a really good question that came in from, I'm, again, I'm going to, I'm going to hope I'm not butchering this guy's name, Logan toes or Logan toe WS Logan to EWS, whatever it is, you know, what it is. And I, I think this is fair. Said get Jay out of his comfort zone and discuss the new world order the great reset and, and what you think. <laughs> <laughs> so what, how are you planning? What are you, how are you planning this next new world order that, you know, and, and the great reset, what, what, what are your thoughts, man? <laughs> <laughs> Is this where I say no comment? <laughs> <laughs> Don't chicken shit out now. Jeez, <laughs> uh... <laughs> no, I tell you what, it's a funny question, but here's the question for you because, and I, and I, I tongue in cheek chose that one because as funny as it is, and I know where he was kind of pushing and poking the flip side is you do your expertise and, and, and your background with real estate development and, and investing and, and you help people with investing, you know, some, not, not, not as a, like a stockbroker type deal, but you, you know, people ask you about business and, you know, kind of what, you, what is Jay, how is Jay Scott looking at the future? How's, you know, you got fuel prices are going to go stupid. The interest rates are going to start changing. We're going to have supply chain issues coming up. You know, what does a person like Jay Scott, do you change any, are, are you, are you looking at changing anything in your life? Are you taking advantage of certain things now in your life? Or are you, you know, buckling down and hunkering down? What, what is a, what is a J Scott doing these days? Well, I, I think with everything going on in our world today, as good as times have been, um, as good as the economy has been, I think it's definitely a time to start kind of realizing that, if you look back at the history of time, that things are not always, they always tend to change. And they always, when, you know, when you get in a rhythm and get in a pattern, they change. And so you have to be able to adapt. And I think with, you know, COVID-19 and the virus and everything that's happened over the last couple of years and watching how the governments from our government to governments all across the world have stepped in and tried to handle this, you know, quote unquote crisis. And, you know, I'm not taking away, you know, lots of people have died and all the different, you know, tragedies that have happened, but you have to sit back and kind of ask yourself, you know, infusing trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy, you know, did that truly help people? Um, did that, did that actually make their problems worse by just giving people money? Does that actually make their problems and issues? Does that, does it make them go away or does it actually make it worse? Um, I am of the opinion, you know, I'm heavily real estate focused in my own world. And that's kind of what I think about every day. Um, I honestly think that there's a day of reckoning coming. I think when, you know, our supply is so low, our demand is so high, 
when that kind of shifts, when interest rates get so high, when gas prices get so high, when the cost of business of doing business gets so high, you know, where does someone is going to have to pay the piper? And I'm of the opinion that um, we've been in, you know, you hear on the news of, you know, how bad people are struggling. I just don't see it. I, everyone I talk to is doing better financially than they've ever done. Maybe it's because of my sphere of influence and people I run around with. And maybe the more people that I talk to are, you know, into real estate and into the world of finance and things have been really, really good. I don't see the struggle that you hear about on the news. And I'm not saying that there's not, it's not out there and I'm not, um, taking anything away from the people that have really struggled. But I look at this as a cycle and I look at this as, you know, things have been really good for most people that I know economically. And I know that personally, I'm, I'm kind of pulling back in reserve. I'm kind of being a little more cautious. I'm looking at every real estate deal more with a fine tooth comb, knowing that I don't think we can sustain the amount of appreciation that we've seen in real estate prices across the country and across the, you know, the globe for that matter. Um, I, I think that once the demand diminishes a little bit and the supply catches up, um, you know, I think a, a, as soon as someone can buy the house next door for a cheaper price, they're going to walk from the existing house that they're in and walk from that mortgage to, to buy the house next door. As soon as that starts happening, I think, you know, stuff starts sliding. Um, I don't want to be perceived as a pessimist, but I'm, I, I'm, you know, 08 was the last time that things came crumbling down. We're now 2022, you know, so we're 14 years later. I mean, when you look at you know, recessions, economic cycles, real estate cycles. I mean, everything goes up and then it comes down and then it goes up and it comes down. I would not be bullish myself right now on buying a bunch of, you know, properties thinking that you're going to continually get that, you know, in Phoenix last year, I think it was 32% year over year average of appreciation on properties in general. Like that's just 32%. That doesn't happen. That, that, that's not sustainable. Um, so, you know, I get on my soapbox a little bit. I would be very, very cautious moving forward with, you know, a, a brand new truck right now is a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. It's insane. It's, I mean, the, the, you know, uh, you know, gas is, you know, five, six in California, it's six and a half dollars a gallon. Um, you know, houses that I paid a, Hundred thousand for worth five fifty. Yeah. Now, like, and 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 to your point, I mean, no, you're you're. I, I, I just don't know how much longer this can hold on. It's it. I agree. It's it's a, it has to be a bubble right now, because I I will I will, and I bet you're seeing that. I, I've got to believe you're probably seeing that in South Carolina at the restaurants and stuff. But I was in Colorado, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, for two weeks, and you know, where I, I was in Loveland and I'm t- now, let me, let me take a step back. I think you got two things going on. We, you know, one, we're coming off of COVID and we're coming off of governments and local 
policies saying you can't go out or if you do go out, you got to, you know, jump through all these hoops and it shut a lot of activity down. It shut a lot of the normal external expression of lifestyle down. And so where now that all of a sudden, you know, mask mandates are lifted and the, and the vaccine passport stuff has kind of gone away and restaurants are opening up and, and events, you know, concerts and events and people are getting back to life. There's like this, there's, there's two years of like this pent up frustration of, I want to go and do something. Cause I saw it in Colorado where, yeah, every day you drive by the gas station and the, the price of the get of gas went up at least a quarter, if not 50 cents. And every time I went to come on now, I don't know why I'm getting that message on my internet. I should have good internet. Um, Every time I went to, every time I went to a restaurant, it was packed, like packed on a Tuesday right. after I, I met a, a, one of my, one of the guys that follows Rowan resources um, on a Tuesday night. And I told him, I'm like, Hey, I'm running right. I'm, I'm running late. Just, I'll be there. Just grab a spot at the bar. He's like, Nope, can't it's packed. We got There's a waiting list. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's a Tuesday night at seven o'clock. I do think we're going to have a travel boom and we're going to have a pent up to, you know, people just want to move about and shake off and, and, you know, travel and, and go have fun and do some of those things. So when I say things are bound to slow down, I, I think we're in for another good 12 months of great property appreciation. I think we're in for businesses thriving because people are finally can get out from under the umbrella of all of the COVID regulations. But what I am saying is from a real estate investment standpoint, I am not bullish on the next five years. I yeah. think there is a day of reckoning coming where something has got to change. And I believe it will change. I believe there will be some downfall. I think there will be some opportunity. And so I've been just, you know, people ask me almost every day, what do you think? What are you buying? What do you, I'm, I'm like, I'm not really buying anything. I'm looking at every deal. And if it's an absolute smoking deal, maybe I'll buy it, but I'm kind of just sitting back, just observing what's going on. And honestly, I've been shaking my head for the last two or three years not believing what's going on. Yeah, and usually, usually I find myself when stuff doesn't make sense, I need to follow my gut. And my gut tells me that there's something coming that is going to allow for people like me that like buying good deals to buy some great deals. And so I'm just kind of sitting on the sidelines. I'm yeah. gathering cash and I'm just waiting. Um, because I with think that being said, I think over the next year, there's going to be still some phenomenal appreciation. And I think you can buy houses and a year from now, they're going to be worth more, but someday coming. And I would say in the next five years, there's going to be some rougher times ahead. Do you think it's going to actually take that long though? I'm, I'm just at, at this point, I'm just looking at, so there's two things that I've been noticing. So yeah, 
we've got all this pent up, you know, a, you know, the federal government. So Kelly, I mean, she still works for the federal small business administration running, not running, but involved with a lot of this, the federal stimulus stuff that's going out there. And the amount of money that the federal government is just pumping into people's pockets is insane to where, yeah, we've got a time now where we've got some people have some free money to play with. But I think a lot of other people are, and I saw this, that there's so much pent up demand for, you know, the, 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 the demand side of the equation. There's so much pent up demand side of the equation. People are doing things and they're just screw it. I, you know, I know it's that, irrational behavior is yeah, what's happening. Yeah. So you, you, we know that the prices of gasoline or fuel is going to go up. We know things are going to change. So I'm going to go out and have fun now. And they're just putting it on credit cards or whatever, man. If you've already, if you're lit, in my opinion, I'm not a financial guy, but my opinion is, is kind of similar to what you're talking about. I just may be more pessimistic, not pessimistic on timeline, because if you're already kind of floating the edge of what your credit card, what your bills that you can pay. And, and if you're, if you're leveraged very heavily on your credit card bills, if your if interest rates start going up, like people say that they're going to start going up, your minimum monthly payments are going to go up. And if you don't have a buffer right now, a, a good enough buffer right now to be able to handle extra payments on your credit cards. Now, what's going to happen when all of a sudden your minimum monthly payments are going to go up? along with fuel costs going up, especially when we look at supply chain issues that are not going to go away um, to where I see, I, I just saw a lot of people engaging in things that I'm like, man. Well, the people are spending money like drunk sailors. I mean, it's absolutely insane, but I, I think there's still enough stimulus money in the system that it's going to take a while for it to come and, and, and create a full-blown recession and make our economy, you know, dump in the tank. I, I honestly, I never am one to say I have a crystal ball and I'm going to tell you, but I, what I can tell you is I am watching very, very conservatively from the sidelines, waiting to see what happens and looking for opportunities when things do go sideways because I fully believe that things will go sideways in the next five years, whether it happens in the next five months or five years. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's way above my pay grade, but I do believe that, you know, we are, whether we like it or not, we could very easily get drug into the Russia-Ukraine conflict. One thing could happen. One of our troops, you know, God forbid, but one of our troops or someone could get shot at or killed or at the wrong place at the wrong time. And we literally are in a full-blown conflict. Um, it, you know, or I, more like, I would more not, likely, I would not be bullish right now on, on, economic on investing, I would be sitting back. And there's people that say, I'm just crazy. I only know what I know and I can only follow my gut. I don't listen to anyone else. I listen to what I see and what I think. And I think, I think there's some rough waters ahead. Yeah, I, I agree, man. And, and there's a lot more smart, there's a hell of a lot more smart people talking about certain things than 
that I know that that's for sure. But yeah, I I'm, I'm with you. We've, you know, for Kelly and I, we've really kind of stocked up on a lot of non-perishable, just, just hard items that we know we're going to need over time. Cause we know the, the availability is here now, the, the price is still the same or reasonable now. So these are things that we can just stock up that we know we're going to have over time. And we can just sit on it and be like, all right, well, at least we got those things taken care of, pay down as much of the credit card debt as, as we have, you know, that we, you know, we, we don't, we use our credit cards a lot, but we pay them off every month because we can't, I, we just like to build. That's that the only way to do it in my opinion. Yeah. And so just get the hell out of debt. You know what I mean? Need not, I know, and I understand there is actually good debt to have that, that out allows you more freedom to, to utilize the cash as you have. But then there's just that frivolous debt that is doing you, it's not leveraging you and putting you forward on the landscape whatsoever. Get rid of that shit because it's, it's going to come and back and bite you in the butt later on. And yeah, I just, I think this is where you start saving some money and just start putting some stuff aside for the, you know, the later rainy days coming because I'm more concerned, you know, what you said about Russia I was listening to Glenn Beck had a discussion yesterday about the supply chain issues. And um, I heard what he was saying about wheat. You know, when you look at how much we get from Russia from a wheat standpoint, and especially chemicals and stuff that's needed for fertilizers and herbicides and that type of stuff, it is going to, and I, we, I'll tell you right now, it's, it's not conspiracy theory. Just, I am, I am adjusting what I am going to do with my food plots and my habitat stuff that I do here on the landscape, because herbicide has just doubled and tripled as far as a cost goes. And then fertilizer has doubled, tripled, and even almost four times as expensive as it, what it used to be. Our landowners already are juggling what crops they're about to put in the ground based on what they think they can get for it when, you know, what, and we also have a drought that we're dealing with and everything else. So, there's going to be some major changes on the landscape. Now, I, you know, Glenn was talking about, we're going to have major wheat crisis and all sorts of that. Mm. The, the, the benefit of some of what we're seeing overseas, our American farmers are incredible. And, and a lot of times they have the ability to make changes pretty darn quick. We in our area used to be a winter wheat a wheat producing area. And then because of the just volume of wheat that Russia was producing, Ukraine, South America, our demand, and then you have everybody anti-gluten this and gluten, you know, everybody's got a celiac disease now. Um, Our demand for wheat went down to where a lot of people in our country stopped growing wheat and moved to other more profitable crops. Now, that we've got these issues with Ukraine, we might actually see a lot of our farmers going back into wheat, which in my world, I'm like, sweet baby Jesus, thank you very much, because that is what supported all of our turkey populations and our good healthy deer populations and all that vibrant game that we had on the landscape. So I would love to see us go that direction. Um, But what I would be more worried about with Ukraine and Russia would be them doing exactly what some uh, people have said that, you know, if, if this administration or whoever it is decides to get too pushy with Putin and he decides to get stupid. And then all of a sudden 
launches some cyber attack on you know the banking system or the credit system or shuts down and all of a sudden you don't have your credit card that you have the you know you all of a sudden you no longer have access to credit cards or online banking or all sorts of that just little disturbances like that we saw what happened with covid what what how it just threw this country into a tizzy you take away the 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 ease of banking the ease of credit cards the ease of our lifestyle people are just going to panic and i think people need to start prepping you know not being the conspiracy theorist prepper so to speak but just being honest like go listen to some of what you know uh, Mike Glover talks about, go listen to what, you know, some of these other guys are talking about like, Hey, how about you just be smart and getting prepared and, and having stuff set aside for a rainy day. So that way you're not impacted when the rest of the world just loses this ever loving mind. Cause it's going to happen eventually here. It, it has to, it has to. It and, always and I, does. And, and, and to your point with the real estate stuff, I, I was talking, so a buddy of mine, uh, one of the landlords I work with, he is a custom home builder, uh, in Colorado. And the prices, the, the number, number one, the number of people that are still buying and, and having, cut, you know, commissioning custom homes being built is insane, like million dollar plus homes. And then the flip side is, is he's got buddies that have lived up there for a while. And, you know, they're back in the day, their house was like a, a 400. Well, here, look at my, when I lived in Colorado, our property, we bought it for $410,000 and we sold it just because we wanted to move it quick. I think we sold it for you know, 460. We, I think we could have sold it for probably over five, but we sold it less than five just because we wanted to just get done with it and move and just get out to Col- uh, get out to Kansas. That same property right now today is worth a million dollars. And what just came out, what talking with my buddy is the fact that he goes, because of what's going on in California and the massive exodus of people in California leaving Colorado, Washington State, Arizona, uh, Nevada, Texas, especially real estate prices have just launched because the people in California have uh, just the way the nature of their economy is, or they, they come out to, you know, they they leave the state of California with a million dollars in their pocket. They go to Colorado and they see a, a 500,000, 600,000, $750,000 house. And they're like, Oh my gosh, that's cheap. Yeah. And so they outbid everyone else and artificially drive up the, the, the price of that, that real estate. Uh, my buddy's neighbor was like, dude, my house is worth $2 million. He's like, how do I not sell it for that? And, and Toby's like, dude, that's fine. If you want to sell it, what are you going to buy? Because right. everything else is worth $2 million. Yes, you, you, you're you looking at, you, you, you just, your house, you bought it for 400 and now it's worth 2 million. That looks like you made a whole bunch of money. What are you, where are you going to go? Unless you're going to leave the state and go to, you know, Northwest Kansas and buy a, you know, $100,000 house out here and then take all that profit with you. But if you're going to try to stay in the same market. Yeah, you can't. You're foolish if you sell. It doesn't matter what the, what the, what the, on paper, it means, what are you going to parlay that into? It's just, yeah. So I don't know. I thought it was an interesting question. And then, then the last one will, will kill it. Um, what do you think about extraterrestrials? (laughs) (laughs) 
Everybody wants it. We have got a couple questions. You know, what What does Jay think about the inevitable? Because now NASA has come back and said that yeah, they they. I, I don't I don't remember exactly what the quote was, but basically, out of the side of their mouth, they were like, "Yeah, we've confirmed that." So anyway, moving on to people are like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" What the hell <laughs> I did don't you say? know, Chris. <laughs> I don't know. If all of a sudden a little <laughs> space comes down and says, "Hey, we've been watching you guys." And we, and we want to come down and interact with you. I just hope they like to the turkey hunt. That's all I hope. Like, take them turkey hunting. <laughs> take, take them down to, to Mexico on a ghoul's turkey hunt and show them the turkey behavior that no one else gets to see. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we've been watching you shoot these birds for years. We know how to do it. Uh, the, the funny part was e. I've seen, yeah, I've, I've been, I've been seeing some of the comments on just some of them. And it's just funny. Cause you know, the aliens, you're like, yeah, seriously and no lie and, and these guys have nuclear weapons you know and they're just rolling laughing like what the hell you gave monkeys a nuclear weapons oh boy this is gonna end badly uh, all right brother i've had i don't how long have we been on i don't know long a couple yeah. hours yeah a few actually but now nah, well i'm gonna it's uh, always great talking to you buddy no i i appreciate yeah, it's, it's fun and and we'll we'll do some more of it because like i said i haven't even touched on half the questions that came in but again I think what I need to do is just start going through and picking certain topics, lumping them, and then having a, a set discussion on them. Because it, it, again, I don't get, you know, I, I look at your Instagram page, which is awesome, by the way. I mean, everybody should go over there, J Scott Outdoors, check it out. Um, and most people know that already. But the funny part is, is, you know, I look at your questions, you know, people are like, I'll ask me a question and people are just jumping in the questions and they're like nice, succinct questions you know there's some that they get in there they're just nice succinct questions i get these questions that are like three paragraphs long like all right based on this and that and what do you think about i mean we've got stuff in here uh picking a unit to hunt for low point draw in colorado based on bull to cow ratios and pros and cons i'm like dude that's a three <laughs> that's a three-hour conversation how behaviors of deer and elk change on different moon phases and temperatures specifically hot cycles i'm like okay, there's another that's a whole different discussion um, oh my gosh, what, what yeah, yeah, differences in calling tactics and broken open country versus open country versus thick, dude. These are these are like these are oh, here we go. Thoughts on the CPW tar targeting mature bucks as CWD spreaders. Okay, I'm gonna have a conversation about regarding CWD, but geez, oh, Pete, that's not a that's not a 15 minute question, <laughs> no, but that's the beauty of it is there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions out there and that's where you and i can really yeah have these kind of conversations and you know have kind of lead the conversations along so that other sportsmen can you know think about the same issues and you know hopefully we can figure out how we're gonna you know treat the resource uh well and and move forward with with what we're doing for sure yeah all right, man, I'm going to cut you loose, brother. I appreciate the time today and have fun with the rest of your vacation. So when, yeah, so I guess, and that's the other thing too, you guys still rent the house in Arizona, yeah? Yep. So we'll be back the end of March. Um, I don't know if you've heard over the last couple hours, but uh, we're getting that storm that came through uh, Texas and uh, it's just hitting us here in the ocean. Um, I'm just looking right at the ocean. The waves are getting big. The, the trees are blowing. Uh, it's raining. Um, got a pretty nice little storm blowing in here for the next couple of days. So we went out earlier today and kind of got a bunch of food and going to hunker down and, and um, kind of hang in the hotel here in Hilton Head. 
for a couple of days and then looks like the weather's going to be pretty good. And then we'll be back uh, the end of March and um, get ready for Gould's Turkey season. And then once that's over, head immediately um, up and start fishing uh, Green River, Henry's Fork. Uh, then going to be in Colorado fishing. And so it kind of the summers when I get to really uh, focus on one of my other passions, that's that's fishing. And, um, so I'm looking forward to that and, uh, yeah, life is good. Nice, man. Well, I, when we get back, when, like I said, when we get done on the other side of Turkey season, we're going to have a conversation both about the ot six and elk, like we always do. Um, but I also want to bring up, you mentioned fishing because I just learned that, um, there is a movement afoot and maybe you already know about this and we don't have to dive into it, but just anyway that yeah so some state agencies are working on genetically modified brown trout and brook trout to basically turn these gmo fish back into the creek and river systems so that way when they breed with the population of brown trout in that creek all the offspring are male to where over time through natural attrition and lack of reproductive success, all the brown trout are gone out of that fishery to whether it's to encourage cutthroats, whether it's to encourage, well, basically it's all about native trout uh, management. So I heard that. I'm like, uh, I know a lot of people that like to hunt or like to fish brown trout. They're my favorite. <laughs> yeah. By far. By so far, my with, favorite to fish. I, I'm going to try to learn a little bit more about that and see just how prevalent it is because apparently that's being talked about by a number of uh, fish species. So that way you don't have to go in and rote known. Uh, if if an agency wants to manage a fishery population, they don't have to go in and rote known the whole lake or the whole river system or whatever. They just turn these GMO fish into the system and they just over time breed themselves out of existence i don't know how i feel I, about that well i think one of the things you have to watch is the people that are in charge and making decisions if they're not actually engaged in the sport of fishing themselves um you have to watch it because um if you take the value off of catching a brown trout take that away just like if you take the value of a elephant in africa or a big African lion, you take the value of that away, you run into all sorts of problems. Man, um, I, by I, placing a value on Gould's turkey in Mexico to these ranchers, it becomes valuable to them and they don't just let the cowboys shoot them on sight, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And so you have to, I, I, that's a whole nother discussion, but fish, <laughs> fish biologists, and me sometimes don't get don't see eye well, to eye on a lot of things. That's that's why I want to do a little bit more research on it and get and <laughs> because I've got history in Colorado with some fishery stuff that, you know, I I'm I'm fine with changing management strategies, but as long as you have some buy, no, not some. As long as you have buy in from the angling community, and the question is, is is that's what's happening, or do we have what I call those native rangers? Because you know that it, there's something about the West where. The, the philosophy about game management in the West is, is starkly different than the other areas of the United States to where there's something about this native, 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 you know, value. Okay. But which one, which 
species. I don't care if we're talking about turkeys, whether we're talking about elk, whether we're talking about whitetails versus or fish. What one is the what's which one's driving your economic engine? Exactly. And then you got to watch if they if they want it to all be native species. The next thing is once they get it, then they say, okay, now we actually can't fish for them. Bingo, because if if we have if we want to sit there and go down the road of climate change and our and our conditions are changing and you have multiple species in a river system and one species is able to perform in that aquatic ecosystem. Again, we're just talking about trout here. One of them's being able to adapt to the climate change and the other one is just taking in the shorts. If we're going to selectively choose the one that's taking it in the shorts and hope that it, I don't know, man. I, I heard that. <laughs> I was sitting there talking. I'm like, what the freaking hell are you talking about? Because I haven't heard this at all within these state agencies. It's like, oh, no, no. Nope. There hasn't been anything yet. I'm like, oh, ooh, now you got Chrissy's attention. Because if you're going to make broad sweeping management decisions like this on a statewide level without public input. Yeah, that's a problem. But then again, we, okay, oh, golly. But this is where we could also tie it in. I could play devil's advocate with myself and tie it in with CWD management and say, okay, well, even though you bring public input into it and the public says we don't want a management, like with chronic wasting disease, the what is necessary on the landscape for chronic wasting disease mitigation right now is not popular. And so if you, I know what I'm saying, but if you let the quote unquote public vote on it, so to speak, and they choose they don't want to do anything because of the short-term satisfaction, you lose the long-term ability later on versus if we if we sacrifice the short-term, we get better in the long-term maybe. So, man, I think it's a good discussion to have and, and maybe juxtapose it because this is where state agency management is not easy, but this is where I've always been the guy that says, I, we, I want transparent, righteous public process and then the you know as long as that happens and and then the agency can make the decision that the agency needs to make as long as you can at least articulate and show that where they actually utilize public comment don't 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 give me some stupid dog and pony show but right just to say that they allowed the public to comment but they really had their mind already made up and it was already voted on and yeah it's already a done deal yeah exactly don't don't do that but anyway Oh, there's another four-hour conversation. So cool, man. I'll cut you loose, brother. Thank you for coming on. I really do. Appreciate it. All right, buddy. Take care. All right. Be safe. Bye.